Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
Welcome back to the Heavy Metal Mayhem Radio Show. It is Sunday, April 30th. I cannot believe this month is over already. Four months gone for 2023. The older we get, the quicker these weeks and months start going by us, I have to tell you. But right there, the original Vikings, Faithful Breath with Gold and Glory. Uh, I'll get into a little story about them in a second. But, you know, this band has been around since 1967. I mean, the year I was born. <laughs> they wanted to name the Magic Power back then before becoming Faithful Breath, and they carried on with that name until around 86 when, I don't they didn't really break up, they just kind of reformed as a band called Risk, and they put out quite a few records under that name, but uh, it wasn't until around 83 with Hard Breath that people really started getting into this group, and they were kind of big where they came from, I mean, they weren't really Vikings, they were from Germany, but I mean, you know, they had that whole Viking image, uh, but I remember it was 1985, around this time, I want to say, uh, Golden Glory had come out a few months before that, the band was coming to America for the first time, and my old co-host and my best bud, Tommy Flying, his Van Tempest were open up for them. Uh, there was another band on the bill, I just can't think of who it was right now, I have to go look at the tapes, I recorded that show, uh, and they played at a place out here in Staten Island where I live today, back then I lived in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, it was called Club Intimate or the Intimate Club, I don't remember. Uh, it was a little divey, but I remember getting there and I was telling Tommy like for weeks, you know, Faithful Breath of this big band from Germany, they're coming over here. It's going to be a great big show, there's going to be a lot of people there. <laughs> you know, I was like so excited that Tommy's band had a chance to open up for like, like a big band and an international band. You know, but being such an underground fanatic back then, I, mean, I guess in my head I made them out to be bigger than they really were. And when they came here, there was, like, nobody in the club. I mean, the only people that were there were all the friends of the bands that were playing that night besides them. And they had a pretty big tour lined up. I mean, they were going pretty much throughout the whole country, if I remember back then. And I, I, and I, I was writing, my friend Roberta had a magazine called Buried Alive. She put out quite a few wishes of this magazine out of Connecticut. And I used to write some articles for her back in the mid-'80s. And I said, no, I'm going to interview the band, and I'll send you an interview. And it was a horrible, horrible interview. <laughs> Because the club is very loud. I'm doing it on an old Walkman trying to record it. I didn't really know what to ask these guys. You know, I didn't prepare for it or anything like that. Just like you kind of do now. Nothing's changed in the last 40 years. Uh, but I interviewed the band. I asked them a whole bunch of dumb questions, you know. And I kept, like, reassuring them. They were, like, really upset that there was nobody in the club. And they were getting ready to come on. And about 20 minutes, I'm like, oh, it's going to get crowded. Don't worry. The place is going to be packed in, like, 15, 20 minutes. It's going to get busy. Don't worry. And when they get on the stage, there were even less people there. Because everybody that came to see the opening bands sort of winded out and left at that point in time. But I stood there. And they were great. And they sounded great. And I'm a big fan of these guys till today. I wish they would kind of get back together. Uh, Risk broke up sometime in the 90s, I want to say, in the late 90s. It'd be great to see a reunion of these guys and maybe just kind of do the festival circuit for a year. I think that would be a pretty cool thing. Ah, all right, but hey, I forgot our guest tonight. How can I do that? We got great ones. Claude Snell from Dio is on tonight. We'll have him on the second half of the show. And Mark Sutcliffe from Trespass. We did this interview uh, last week right before the Keep It True Festival. Uh, and I finally got to see most of, if not all of, the live bands that were up on uh, YouTube from Keep It True. And a lot of them sounded really great especially Trespass. So we'll be talking to Mark in about 20 minutes or so. We're going to play some music between now and then. I think we'll keep the news and all the other stuff down tonight to the bare minimum because we do have two guests to get through and then it'll be May before you know it. All right, so how about we do a little thruster, Screams of Pain. Thank you. 
The mighty are themselves destroyed like dust before the wind. The sword is your sword. The sword is your sword. Grand Prix with Samurai, and right before that, Majestic Right with Promise of Power. I, like I said, to email on the chat room, I've been trying to get Nick Trotty on the show for a while. It hasn't worked. Maybe I'll reach out to the singer and try to get him on the program. We'll, we'll see if we have any more luck with him. And In the chat, you guys were talking about you know vinyl, right? Because I read an article yesterday about vinyl, how it's been outselling CDs for the last couple of years. Uh, you know, downloads are still like the number one way of people get music today. But they were saying that 50% of the people that, that have been buying the vinyl records don't even own a record player or a turntable. So I, I guess they're just buying them as artwork or just to collect them to have them in a collection. I can't think of any other reason why you'd buy a vinyl record and not play it. But, you know, I mean, I have all my vinyls. I have all my uh, records from the 80s still, from the 70s and 80s. And I play, you know, a few of them got kind of damaged from being a heater in the old house. <laughs> I got a little warped, but I still have them. Mine abused, abused the hell out of it because I play them nonstop. I don't buy them to collect them. I mean, there's some great artwork on them, but, you know, records are meant to be played, so I don't know why you waste all your money buying them. But you're not really wasting your money because you're supporting the band, so I shouldn't say that. But buy the record, play the damn record. Don't hang it up on a frame on your wall. Buy it and play it. That's what the music is meant for. All right, here. You know, yesterday I was uh, watching TV and... Uh, Anvil, the documentary, was on Showtime. I think it's going to be on the whole month. So if you have Showtime, uh, you can check out the Anvil documentary, the story of Anvil, if you don't or you haven't seen it already. And I was watching it. I was listening to him crying over and over again for like, you know, two hours about how the band got left behind, how they never got the big break. And, you know, 
we've had Lips on the show I don't know how many times, and every time he's on the show, he talks about the same thing, how they got passed on, how they got passed by. Why it didn't work for them, I don't know. Maybe because, you know, by the time Metal and Metal came out in 1982, the scene started to explode. You know, Metallica's first record was out. They were bringing on a new era of the music. Slayer, Merciful Fate, all these bands were putting out records. And I guess, you know, Anvil being Anvil, they were just putting out the same record over and over again every year. Nothing changed with those guys. And I guess other bands just surpassed them. So I don't really know the reason of it. But when I did bring it up to Lyft the last time he was on the show a few months ago, he definitely got a little testy with me. <laughs> I said, how long are you going to live off the, you know, the fame of the documentary? And he didn't kind of like that. But uh, he's definitely a character. I'll give him that. Let's play some Anvil. After this, I'll come back on. We'll play something off the new Trespass record. Talk to Mark Sutcliffe. Well, we already spoke to Mark. It's pre-recorded this interview. And we've got Claude Snell on in about 45 minutes or so live right after this. So here's some Metal on Metal.
All right, so Man for Metal on Metal. My favorite part of that documentary was when they were backstage at some festival. Lips was running around talking to everybody. And he's got Michael Shanker cornered and, and uh, Carmine Appleseed is telling them stories about stuff they did at one time that they thought they remembered. And they were staring at him like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> I love that part. All right, Trespass. We're going to talk to Mark Starcliffe in a few minutes. The band has a brand new record out, Wolves at the Door. Their third one since getting back together, or just getting back together under the Trespass name, I should say, in 2014. Here we go off the brand new record. I don't know what can we do. Let me see. How about we play uh, Man and Machine? Here you go.
Hey, Mark, this is Mike. How are you? Hi, Mike. I'm good. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk with you. I'm sorry we missed each other last week. <laughs> it's a beautiful day here in England. Uh, I'm glad. The, the weather is changing here, too, in the U.S. The spring is finally coming. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Uh, listen, it's a pleasure to have you on here today. And being such a big fan of the band, going back to, I hate to say 81, because it really makes me feel old, but it goes that far back. Hey, it makes you feel old. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they were great times back then, and it's amazing when you think about it. 40-something years the band's been going on in one form or another, and I think you're at your finest point right now. Well, that's very kind of you to say. I, um, it's strange, really, because I've often said that um, when we started in 79, um, it's weird because I, I obviously... I really got sort of 75 when I was a teenager. I really got into Purple and Sabbath and bands like that. And and they seemed like they were, to us at that age, they seemed like they were from another era. But, of course, they were only kind of 10 years older than us. True. <laughs> and they're still playing today. But, but yeah, well that, I think that was something that no one could predict. I mean, I mean, I, I, I mean, I thought I. It sounds like a really strange thing to say, but I already thought, like in '75, with Glenn Hughes and Tommy Bowden, that Deep Purple were washed up. You know, that was it, kind of thing. And being the new generation coming along, of course, reinforced that. But if somebody had told me that Purple and Ozzy and people like that would would still be playing now, I'm not sure I would have believed them. That's but I'm true. glad. I'm glad because. Uh, Absolutely. You know, Mark, when you think about it, like you were saying, those guys were considered the old guard back then, and then there were people like you coming up through the scene, and, you know, you kind of took what you were into at the time, which was bands like Deep Purple and Status Quo, because that's what we all kind of grew up on back then, but you guys took it and did something completely new and different with it, and there were a lot of bands in that group of the late 70s that were turning something old into something new. I mean, how do you create new? Oh, that's a really hard question. Actually, we, uh, my brother had some really interesting American influences, um, bands that perhaps were a little bit more obscure, although one of them was Kiss. I mean, you know, and so he brought his kind of slightly different perspective. And I, and I, I, I do honestly think that bands are the music that comes out of bands. I mean, I always have been the main writer, but I guess your personality, your your particular mix of these things and I don't think I've ever set out truly to to think well this is the kind of music I, I'm playing I'm going to play because when you think about it so many rock bands are like two guitars bass drums maybe keyboards and, and you know there's so many bands who fit into that basic set of instruments and yet such diversity I, I, and I think that's that's that, that's what's great about it. I, I guess I, I I've always written. I, I don't think we we even our very first concert. I mean, our first concert was March the eleventh, nineteen seventy nine, and we were playing covers then, mostly Lizzie and stuff like that. But we played original material too at that first show, and we've all it's something I for me that's what it's about. True. Was it hard when you're playing a show back then and you're an unknown band? Was it hard introduce, introducing originals into the set where the fans like saying, "Hey, I want to hear something new," or no, just give me more Thin Lizzy? 
Well, actually, what happened was, and this is a, this is a this is a true story. We started to play around the sort of uh, local scene, and um, we were playing Lizzie, UFO, Bad Company, Free, that kind of stuff, in our own way. And we were very lucky. My brother was such a great drummer that we could do uh, uh, songs like Bad Reputation by Thin Lizzie, where the drums and, and, and Emerald, which are you know real drum. Because Brian Downey from Thin Lizzy is one of the greatest rock drummers all, of all time, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And and so we were able to do some stuff. But what we did was, right from the start, was put our own tracks in. And what used to happen was, a girl would come up to me at the end and say, who was that song by? I want to buy their, their records. <laughs> and of course, it was ours. So I kind of knew we were on to something. And, and, and also, what I tried to do was when we wrote a song, I listen, I, you know, I did listen to the bands that I really loved, and I thought, well, I'll, I don't mind bringing some elements of what I love to my own music. And because I've seen, going around, the, you know, when you're playing in a band, you go and see other bands to see what, check them out. And um, so many bands, young bands, they'll play some covers. Yeah, pretty good. Then when they play their original material, they go off on a complete tangent doesn't sit in the set at all they go off somewhere else completely you know so i just yeah. did what i loved and and it worked that it did i mean when I you mean, think when you, mark when you think about the time i mean you know you guys came from a small area and there was a lot of there was a you know a big scene going on in london some of the bigger cities in, in england at the time did you feel isolated from the rest of the scene because today you know we're so connected with the internet and you know the social yeah. media, but back then it wasn't as easy as people make it sound. You know, when you're in a smaller town, it's. I mean, I remember it well because, I mean, where where, where we grew up is only kind of sixty miles from London, from central London. But because East Anglia, that the, the bit of England that sticks out to the east, is it isn't served that well by motorways. Everybody. When, when I was talking to people in London about where we were from, I never said the town that we were from, Sudbury. I always said Cambridge or Colchester because they hadn't, they just hadn't heard of. And I remember Jeff Barton, who uh, was the editor of Kerrang! back then, described where we came from as a bucolic backwater. And I remember having to look it up in the in the dictionary. <laughs> see what it meant. <laughs> to see what it meant. He said the boonies or the backwards. I don't know, but he didn't. He said the back. I thought, what the hell is he talking about? Yeah. It was called a one-horse town and all that kind of stuff by by the press. And it's interesting because you know Britain's heavy metal in music comes from cities of heavy industry. You know Birmingham, Sheffield, where maybe people were a little bit a trespass coming from the countryside. Maybe that just gave us a slightly different angle. I've, you know, it's a little, a little. Perhaps we're not quite as heavy as some. You know, we're we've always tried to be a, a fairly melodic band. Um, but yeah, I mean, what happened with us? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a long story, but but um, it was that we were so young and naive, and we were kind of younger than most of the bands that took off, like Def Leppard and uh, Saxon, Iron Maiden. They're four or five years older than us. So, my, I mean, my brother was 
here's a little stat for you. When we recorded one of these days, my brother had only been playing the drums 18 months. Wow. Yeah, he'd only actually got a drum kit 18 months before and was a total natural. He just he just went into that seat and bang. And me and him being close, I think that's where some of the music came from, you know. And uh, so we went in the studio and we, we and we were green. We were really green. So we start when one of these days came out and started to get really noticed. In fact, we were told it might have even if, if they'd been able to shift it quickly enough, it might have charted, you know. But we, we did it on an independent label and everything was a bit slow and out in the country. And then uh, the record industry started to ring me up. And we didn't have a phone then, so I had to run to my auntie's house wow. to answer. How uh, <laughs> backward we were, you know, we were still using drums back then. Um, but, uh, but, 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 and the guy, somebody said, "Oh, you've got to get a front man and be like Deep Purple, you know, you've got to have this front man at the front." And I, being a real big Thin Lizzy fan, I knew you could be a front man and play an instrument as well, and. I like that's what I wanted to do, but I, I allowed myself, being very young and naive, to be talked into changing things. And you know yourself, when something starts to tip, trip over in the industry and something starts to grow, you've got to grab it with both hands. If you delay at all, if you pause to think, it's already moved on. And that's what had kind of happened with us, really. Yeah. And that's around, that's around the time that uh, Lars Ulrich and. Uh, James Hetfield started to write to us. Sure. When you think, I mean, like, you know, you had the singles in the EP in the early days going into, like, 1981. And do you think that was one of the stepping stones that was hard to get over? Because there were a few singers that came in and out of the band at that time. Yourself, you know, was also singing. Do you think it was hard for the fans to focus when there was a different lineup or a different yeah. singer? Yeah, of course. I, I mean, that was my fault. That, that, was, that was being young and green. And maybe a little lacking a bit of confidence because looking back on it now, I honestly would have rather I went out as as how I really wanted to be and failed than failed by messing around with things. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm I'm a real kind of left wing kind of guy when it comes to most things in life, but when it comes to music, I'm a, I'm a dictator. <laughs> So I can't help thinking that if I'd been allowed to really get my hands on the steering wheel, at least I would have had purity, even if it if it failed, you know. And one of the things about the new album is, for me, it really, I've, I've sort of kind of got my hands on the levers of power, perhaps a little bit more. And there is a freedom there, and I have done pretty much all that I wanted to do. There were more songs. I mean, the album's starting to get some good reviews, actually, that I'm really pleased about. Maybe a bit more up-tempo stuff, but Trespass have never really gone down that road. You know, we're kind of a different kind of band. But, but um, no, I am pleased with the album. I think it's one of the best things we've, we've done, you know, even though I say so myself. No, absolutely. Wolf of the Door, I think, is one of your most solid releases. And when you think about it, I mean, three records in the last eight years, nine years, that was more of an output than you had in the heyday of the band in the earlier days. I mean, and I think it really has defined who the band is. And 
when I heard the band, I mean, because back, if you go back to the 80s, 81, I mean, after the EP came out, you know, we didn't have a lot of media back then. There were some fanzines out. So it was years before some people in other countries realized the band had even broken up. You know, but then Blue Blood came around not long after that. That's when I realized, you know, they're not trespassed anymore. You know, it's a different band and a different sound. But that was kind of where things were going at that time also. Yeah, that was the ultimate. Me losing my grip. I mean, I love... I love songwriting. It's something I really enjoy. And if somebody sets me a challenge to write a song like this or like that, I guess I had a young child at the time, and I, I, and, I, I and my brother managed to talk me into changing the name. We did Reformers Trespass in 86. And we did some demos. None, none of it ever got heard. Um, and, and, then, and then we changed our name to Blue Blood. It, it was a much more high-energy... American influenced kind of thing, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there were some great bands around at that, that time. The American bands that I was really influenced by Americans and and Canadian as well. Helix and bands like that. Um, real sort of mar- mar- sort of enjoy more enjoy yourself kind of music, you know. But, um, but yeah, I I, I I I don't I don't regret the Blue Blood thing, but it was much more of an industry based idea. Absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't even compare that to Trespassing. To me, it was a whole different band, and it was what was going on at the time. It was more AOR-oriented. It was more rock radio-oriented. And I think you, you know, if, to be in that genre, I think you guys definitely accomplished what you needed to go, you know, do to be in that genre. It was, it was great. And I remember in 93-4 when Head came out, and I was like, ah, Trespass has got a new record. And it was a different sound than record than earlier Trespass and Blue Blood, and even different than what you guys came back at, you know, in 2014. Yeah. I, I think head was an interesting experience, but I, I think maybe it was I, I kind of backlashed too heavily away from what I'd been doing, and went a bit, went a bit too dark. <laughs> well, I mean, over the decades, I mean, obviously your your influences are going to change, things you listen to change. So, do you kind of have to write for the fans? So, you know what, I have to write, you know, like one of these days because that's what the fans want, or you just have to kind of write what you feel because you are a musician and you're an artist. Well, well the latter, really. But, but, like, for instance, we're about to play um, Keep It True in Germany, and they've asked us to do an old school set, which is a bit of a strange thing to do when you've got a new album out that you're proud of. You know, so I'm, I, you know, because I don't like being told what to do. I'll probably play something I, I want to play anyway. But of course, the fans want to hear the stuff. I mean, Deep Purple have to play Smoke on the Water and Highway Star, don't they? So, okay, they get paid more than I do, but still, you know, you've got to love those songs. I mean, you've just got to, I mean, you've got to love them. They, I mean, to me, songs are actually more important than the artists in some way. I mean, look at the tribute industry, which is something that irritates me very much. (laughs) Start to try and walk like the guy or have their teeth done to look like the guy and all that kind of thing, which is, I have dabbled with myself with with a status quo tribute for a little while. Um, And it's music I love, don't get me wrong. And, you know, you learn 40 status quo songs or whoever it is, and you play it to a decent standard, that's a big ask. But at, at, at a recent show, I did say to the audience, I said, well, thank you very much, because the theatre we played at, is, they always sell out when they have tribute bands there. 
and, and, and you know, we did okay. We were quite sellow, but we did okay. Thanks, everyone, for turning out to support original music. Because after all, if there aren't any original bands, there'll be nobody left to tribute. <laughs> That's right. That's great. <laughs> so, <laughs> but they all laughed anyway, so it was okay. True. Like you said, with Keep It True, they want you to do an old school set, and there were so many great old songs, but with all the records that have come out since then, all the music you've made since then, you know, fans that are fans of Trespass want to hear a little bit of everything. And I get, you know, he has a certain thing he wants to do with that festival, but when you think about it, not to hear anything off of Wolf at the Door, that would be disappointing if I was going to see Trespass live. I, I, I know. I, 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 I mean, we've got a guy coming from Rio just to see us. Wow. You know, the guy, he must be getting on the plane any minute, I should think. But, yeah, I mean, you've got to play for people. You've got to, you've got to you know, that's, it, I mean, the whole, one of the things, and going back to what you were saying at the start, I mean, it's a family, this thing. It's a family, and people are loyal, you know, to the music and to the and to the bands and, and to each other. And, and, of course, the record industry hate that because they want a fast turnover. They don't like heavy rock music. Not because it's not the music; it's the loyalty of the fans and the fact that they they stick with it. You know, in their sixties and seventies. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> it really is. You know, Mark, when you recorded the Trespass record in two thousand and fifteen, uh, was it intended to go out and, and try to redo what you did in the past and make things different? What, what happened there was, I became a bit irritating to the other guys who really quite honestly wanted to forget the whole thing uh, actually I had I had some of the material that ended up on footprints then and some other things and uh, they didn't make it eventually and you, you get you know sometimes songs make it through sometimes they don't but the I, I, the only thing I could persuade the guys to do was to re-record some of the old classics you know in a, with a consistent sound and a consistent lineup. I don't think any of them really intended to take it any further than that. That's all I could get them to do. But what happened was, of course, that rekindled my spark and I burst into flame in terms of writing. And I had all this material, but I just couldn't get the original guys to get involved with that. So we, we ended up, I ended up having to form a new lineup to, to move on from there. And so that's what we did, you know. And so, and so uh, it opened a few doors, I think. It, it sort of, uh, you know, uh, obviously COVID got in the way of, of, of Wolf at the Door a little bit. I've, I've had some of that material for a long time. Yeah. With the re-recorded songs, did you feel like there were any of them that you wanted to kind of right or wrong that maybe took place in the original writings that you weren't happy with? Or did you just want to kind of update some of them, you know, because it sounds more like Trespass of Today. Yeah, they, they they are they are updated a little. I think that's that's because a lot of the material, a lot of the stuff that was available to people, like on some of the compilations and that. I mean, they're demos. They're demos. I mean, they were practically played live. We just there was no attempt at production or thinking about the song. So yeah, we did revisit them a little. You know, a couple of years later, Footprints in the Rock come out, and I thought that was such an amazing record because. It had a little bit of the old and a little bit of the new mixed together, and it was like what I thought Trespass would have been like if you guys were continually recording music of all those decades. I said, this is where I think the band would have been at right now, no matter where they went. Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's a real compliment. Thank you very much, because that's what I was kind of trying to do, to, to build a bridge. I mean, obviously, like we come, 
again, going back to what we were saying before, when we write, it, it just comes out. I mean, a, a couple of guys that have interviewed me have asked me, somebody actually said, this record sounds like it's come straight out of the 80s. So I thought, what? <laughs> no, that certainly wasn't my intention. But we just do what we do. I mean, and I try to make it sound as good as I can. But, uh, in, but it's kind of a compliment on the one hand, because it, it's saying that the, the band sounds like Trespass. And, and, and at the same time, you think, oh, I, I thought I'd moved on a bit more than that. But, uh, but, but, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, it's, you know, we just do what we do. A bit, of me- a bit more melody than some, perhaps. Uh, not the kind of lead vocal. I've, I've never wanted Trespass. Be, I mean, obviously, if Ronnie Dio had said, can I come and sing in Trespass? I, I would have let him, you know. <laughs> um, I, I mean, that would have been a, my dream lineup. I think. I, I, you know, I, I would have had, you know, uh, Roger Glover and, and Ian Pace on drums and Ronnie Dio on vocals and John Lord on keys, I think. <laughs> Your dream band. <laughs> yeah, who wouldn't want that? But I, I think you guys are in a good spot right now and in a good place, and it really shows I, I, I Wolf on the Door. And, you know, I, was this album recorded before COVID or after it? Because a lot of bands had recordings going on at the time, and they kind of held on to them because they didn't want to release it during then because they didn't know what was going to happen yeah. with the scene or live shows or anything else? Well, what happened was, I mean, this is a bit of a sad story, but what happened was I, I had built myself a studio, but then because of pressures of COVID and uh, yeah, my, my, my mother wasn't had some problems with her mental health. And anyway, long story short, I ended up splitting up with the woman that I was with at the time. And I lost the studio, but I had used it in that in that period to write most of the material that's on Wolf at the Door, and that was done during COVID, really. Um, and I, I didn't know quite what was going to go, what was going to happen with our record company. Um, and when I finally managed to send them some stuff, but actually, they probably some songs from that session that didn't make it onto the album. Different things and. I mean, they may they may be on a later one, maybe if we do another one. But um, you know, uh, yeah, I, I I I do feel something, a bit of an undercurrent, you know, with this album that that, that I'm really hoping um, it will open a few doors for us and give us a chance to get out and, and and play a bit more to some audiences that perhaps we haven't been able to before. I, I hope that happens. You know, what? you come from a time like me where, you know, record company was king and, you know, as a young guy in a band, you're looking to sign to those major labels, you know, Atlantic, CBS, EMI. Right. And now 30, 40 years later, you know, we've seen the destruction of those labels, especially for certain genres of music like metal and rock. If it isn't pop music or AOR, they don't want to be bothered with you anymore. Are you happier today with the way the scene is considering that bands really have you know, 100 complete control over the music. There's nobody influencing them anymore. Nobody's saying, well, we want to sign you because we love your music, but we're going to change everything about you after we sign you because we want you to sound like whatever's going on at the time. That doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, the idea that somebody would these days would try and tell me what I, what I was doing was wrong or want to change it, yeah, that, 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 that isn't even in my head now. So that is an improvement, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Do you ever feel like there was a turning point in the band, maybe a decision you made that you kind of, kind of backfired on you, you really thought it was the right one, then years later, like, I don't think I should have did that. 
Yeah, well, like I mentioned before, and, and, and I, I, I wouldn't have got a lead singer. I, 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 I would have continued with the band in its in its more raw form. I think uh, we. The thing is, we did, we we didn't really get a chance to develop. I think possibly the the new wave of heavy metal swept over us before we were really ready. Another couple of years, maybe. We were very young and green, and and I and I felt the pressure. And an and interesting little uh, a story. I mean, maybe back back at the, in the in the day, I was a little bit bitter towards some of the singers as well because I felt like they'd been imposed on me, and it wasn't their fault. They were all nice guys, but we went into uh, a, a great, huge, cavernous BBC studio to record a session for the for the Friday night rock show. Uh, with Tommy Vance and Tony Wilson produced it, and he—I mean—he's worked with everyone, yeah. Deep Purple, you name it. Really influential guy in in in, in the in the BBC in on the music side in those days. And he said, "What have you got this singer in for?" He said, "I prefer your voice. Why don't you sack him now?" So, and I went, "What?" <laughs> yeah. That was a turning point. If I'd have had the cojones to go and say see you Steve His, and I, I would have done the session and we'd have been back on track again but I just didn't have the what it takes I'm afraid I was yeah. too nice that's the case with a lot of bands I mean you know everybody refers to the new wave of British heavy metal as like a, as a sound but it was really a movement that was taking place back then and so many bands fell into the same trap they came out in the late 70s and by 82, 83 they were done. They were all young kids. They just didn't know what was going on. And who would at that time? It was so new. Everything happened around you. I mean, I can only imagine what it must have felt like saying, like, you know, we were there, we were part of it, and it passed us by, but you were like one of a hundred bands that that happened to because we were, everybody's like a bunch of kids back then just looking to play music and that really so involved in what the business part of it was about also. Yeah, that's, that's right. And, and, and I remember I, I, I was in the audience at the O2 in London and Metallica came on to do their encore and started playing one of these days. I mean, you can imagine, can't you, what that was like? Um, I mean, to feel that you've had that kind of influence, it's quite quite nice. Yeah. Absolutely. I can only imagine. I wish they'd cover it. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you get the royalties from it, that's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Mark, I'm not going to keep you, man. It was a pleasure talking. I know you got Keep It True coming up this week. I mean, I'm going to be watching on the live stream. I won't be there in Germany, but I can't wait to see you guys up there performing. Wolf at the Door, Trespass's finest record to date, May 26th on From the Vaults. Everybody has to buy this record. And you can actually get a real record today, not just a CD or a download. They all come That's out on right. vinyl again. <laughs> That's right. And it's, I mean, obviously, when our first single came out, vinyl was it. I mean, you... you yeah. Because kind of when it, because at that time in the UK that was the punk scene and the independent label scene kind of crossed over with the new wave of British heavy metal. So there were small labels and independent people. So that that, that and, and that's you know and so we so we, we 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 you got your notoriety managing to avoid the major labels to start with. I mean we should we we should. The industry missed out, I think, by not signing us and signing perhaps some other bands that seemed more of the genre 
But I, 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 want, I, I will always wonder what that first album would have been like with a decent producer and a bit of help. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're here now with new records, and I'm glad for that because you're getting better with age. Yeah. Thanks for coming. <laughs> you, you take care, Mark. Have a safe trip over to Germany and enjoy yourselves there. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye bye. <laughs>
I want to thank Mark from Trespass. What a great new record they put out. Go and pick up a copy of it. All right, we're going to get to Claude in about 10 minutes. Uh, I'm going to play, uh, we'll do our demolition segment, play something by Dio, I get Claude on the line. Uh, this band is called Cutthroat. Hard to believe that there were like five bands named Cutthroat that all came out around the same time in the late 80s. But these guys were out of Cleveland, Ohio. I think they were around for less than two years, maybe 88 to 90, if even that. They put out one demo tape, the self-titled Cutthroat demo from 89, and then kind of faded into the woodwork. But it was a pretty solid demo, a good thrash metal band, and, you know, I guess they kind of got lost in the mix, so who the hell knows what happened to them. But here you go, Cutthroat, we'll do uh, Dying Earth.
All right, Dio with Mystery. Let's get Claude on the line right now and make this interview happen. Hey, Claude, how are you, my friend? I'm good, man. How about yourself, Mike? I'm doing great. It took a while to make this happen, but uh, we finally connected. Hey, good things take good time, right? That's right. And considering that you're going to be a New Yorker again, things are even better. That's right. That's right. Let's, let's not let's advertise that, though. Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. I apologize. We'll cut that out. Don't That's worry. all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, are we, are, we, are we already recording? You're on live, but most people listen to the replays, oh, well, and we'll just... pointing we'll, that out, dude. We'll that just, always nice to know. All we'll right. Just, we'll just wipe that out. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's, great, it's, it's great talk with you. Such a big fan of, of your keyboard playing, and you really made an impact on the sim when you think about it. It's hard to believe it's been like you know, over four decades that you've been out there playing and making music. You know, I could never enjoy being reminded of that fact as often as possible. <laughs> Uh, I know. We're getting older, but you know what? We're still doing it, and that's all that matters. What matters is that we were around to do it when we did it. That, that's really what, what matters. Um, you know, to, to, to have been around at a time when, when music was just such a fundamental part of everybody's life. I mean, it wasn't like just some people were into music. I mean, it was, it was almost like a religion. I mean, everybody that everybody knew, whether you listen to the, even, even if you weren't, even if you weren't a rock guy, even if you were like new age, or if you were like a country guy, or if you were a, whatever genre of music it was, everybody had their music. It was like, like I said, it was like a religion. Everybody was, music was a huge part of everybody's life, which doesn't really seem to be the case anymore, which is really, really tragic, I think. That's so true. Do you think it's mostly because of the change in the industry? You know, we can record, you know, when the labels kind of fell apart and bands had to do it on their own, and social media came in, then the downloading started with Napster and all those other sites. Do you think no, that was I'm sort of the sure beginning of the end? I think it's just because music sucks now. <laughs> well, that's no, a good no, reason really. too. <laughs> <laughs> not really. No, no, of course not. Of course not. Actually, I'm I'm surprised every so often. Uh, you know, I, I I was pretty dismissive for a long time of of the newer stuff that was coming along because there there wasn't very much that appealed to me. And then suddenly, you know, this, this little blossom of sound came through the soil, and I'm listening to something. I'm like, ah, that that's really good. Somebody had a legit message there. Um, so yes, to so to, to answer your question without my tongue uh, stuck in my cheek, um, yes, I think it's completely a matter of the the change, not only in the industry and the technology, but the accessibility that came with that. Um, there simply isn't enough time to be involved to the depth that we used to be. Um, I mean, back in the day, if you were a fan of a band, you know, I mean, you spent a lot of time, uh, you spent a lot of your time being being an active fan, whether it was, you know, listening to records or going to the store or looking for articles in, in you know, Hit Parade or Cream or whatever magazine it might have been. There, 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 were, there were a lot of facets involved with, with being, being, um, uh, being into a certain group or even a certain genre of music. If you if you were a you know a metal guy or a rock guy, whatever, there there were there were lots of things. That, and not, I'm not just talking about just you know going to concerts and so forth, but it was almost like on a day to day thing. There there were you know there were there were DJs who listened. I mean, I remember you know uh, growing up in, in New York back in the day. Uh, I, I I'd never miss listening to Alison Steele on uh, NEW back in the day, just because I was so into that 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 new that new format. You know, this was like at the dawn of. Of, of cool FM stations and stuff. So I think with, with all the, the distractions that exist as a result of all the new technology, it, 
there's just not enough time to be ex- to, to spend um, on any one particular thing. I think the, the 90s were kind of like the beginning, I think, of the, the, the development of the short attention span theater thing. Yeah. Uh, People want instant gratification. They they want you know they want to. I mean, you could argue that it it, it all kind of started when when streaming began, because we used you, if even if even if you bought an album that you only bought because there was one song that you wanted to hear, if you spent five six whatever however many dollars you have to spend on a record, you'd listen to the whole record anyway because you were you know you you were literally invested in it. And then you, you, you would likely hear something that you didn't expect to, and hopefully something that you liked. Um, th- that, you know, that fostered almost a grassroots kind of growth of the fans with their bands. Now, now that, you know, that, that doesn't happen anymore. It, it's, it's, you know, you pick and choose, and uh, you, you get your endorphin rush, and you move on to whatever the next thing is. Um, and don't even get me started, like with TikTok, for example. Where, <laughs> I won't. <laughs> they, they, it, I mean, that, that, that's an entire uh, an, an entire platform based on the on the assumption that people don't have more than I, I don't know, I don't even know what the time constraint is, but X amount of seconds that they're willing to pay attention to something. It's and true, that, but that is a generation. Say again. It's true, but that's the young. That's the, the generation that watches TikTok. That's that younger generation. Exactly. Well, that that that's my point. And all right, so let, let let's let's try to be, you know, not 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 old farts and, and not objective about it. The truth is is that the the attraction there is that you you get a lot of these endorphin hits where you get to enjoy a lot of different things. But the negative side, which I which I think is a, a significant consideration, is that you know if, if if you're always going from peak to peak to peak to peak, you never get to to find the satisfaction that comes with developing a taste for something. You know, it's always just about the rush. It's always just about the payoff. You you want to get the, the you know you want to get to the the chorus of the song. But you know the best parts of most songs are really in the verses where the story is being told. Well, that could be a metaphor for for the entire uh, paradigm that exists now. No, nobody cares about the story. They just want their chorus, or they want their you know their their uh, their, their TikTok video or their, or whatever whatever stream they're listening to and so forth. Um, yeah, I think I think this has been a long time coming, and I think that that, that the causes are deeply rooted in, in in multiple facets of of the economy and technology and stuff like that. Um, I remember when I first moved to LA, way back when, um, there, there there were articles that were popping up in like the uh, Hollywood Reporter and you know LA Weekly and stuff. How it used to be that the studio head, for example, in, in the film industry, would be concerned about the success of the franchise that. He was uh, responsible for so whether it was you know Star Trek or Star Wars or uh, Indiana Jones or whatever whatever it was there were there were sequels and there was there was this whole uh, um, looking forward business plan and it got to the point where there were articles about how now it seemed to be that uh, studio heads would be only concerned with um, what was going to happen on their watch because they knew that their lifespan was going to be limited because of the turnover of, of, of um, of personnel uh, uh, in in those higher echelons of, of of the industry were 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 becoming obviously shorter lived, and that that's, that that is almost a parallel to what happened to uh, record companies in the 60s and 70s, when a record company used to sign a band, they were in for the long haul. They would they would invest in producers, and they they they, they wouldn't look for the quick turnaround buck on on the instant success of the record. If it didn't do well, well, they were never happy about it, of course, but. There, there was a long-term game plan. They would invest in the artist. They would give the artists time to grow and develop. And in more, more cases than not, 
that 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 business plan paid off because you know our artistry is is, is like it's, it's a very organic endeavor and like a flower it has to be given time to grow it has to be nurtured and eventually you get the blossom and you go ah that's what i was waiting for that that doesn't happen anymore you know so, so i think that you know you could you could make parallels in a lot of different uh, aspects of life where um where once upon a time there was focus on you know the beginning of the development and eventually the payoff whereas now it's just how quick can we make how much and get it you know be, be done with it so i think that's that's probably the driving force true it's like what you said about the record labels i, I always associated like being on a bull team you know like you got an A and R person, a rep that you know found the band, and they kind of nurtured you like being on a farm team before they moved you up to the majors. But you know, when all that yeah. happens with the record labels, isn't the end game? You know, the artist usually winds up getting screwed somehow on most labels. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much, pretty much. Um, yeah, that, that that actually that's an excellent metaphor as well. The sports industry. I mean, that's that's this is the same kind of thing. It used to be, you know, if a guy didn't do well right away, there, you know, even even their. I mean, look at the Mets. I mean, you're old enough to remember when the Mets first came out, right? Yep. They certainly were not, you know, it, it, it took a lot of balls to be a, a Mets fan. But then 69 rolled around, and all of a sudden, wow, it was worth the wait. So, so yeah, so I, I, think, I think there's a part of that. What was, um, yeah, there, there, you could actually, if you really want to get too analytical about all of this, you could look at language. And a, a phrase came along, it's, it's been a while now, but I think that was a harbinger of, of, of what the future was going to hold. And the phrase was, "What have you done for me lately?" Yeah, right. I mean, that 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 just semantically almost defines the the what the future was going to hold, which is, you know, <laughs> all right. So you did that. Who cares what's next? It's a crazy world we live in. You know, Claire. Anybody who it listens is. to my it show, is. they know you. They know your music. They know what you've been a part of. Uh, for the people that don't, because so you, you know, have a really small audience, is what you're saying. It's me, and the, it's me, and you really today. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we focus on mostly the '70s and '80s. You know, we're a classic rock and metal show, and that's all we focus on. Mm-hmm. So everybody knows. But you know, you, you kind of take it back to the very beginning with you. I mean, even before you know the band started, when you were a kid. I mean, was the piano and keyboard something that you naturally came to, or was it something that was forced upon you, or something that you really wanted to learn? How did you get hooked up with the keyboard? Because that wasn't a common instrument back then. You, most people started with the piano back then, but it's not a common instrument for a lot of guys to start playing. You know, it's a very difficult instrument, in my opinion. Um, yeah, well, so it, 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 it was a piano, you know, at least a decade before keyboards even, you know, came around. But yes, no, and, and it was... Um, it was it was forced down my throat. I mean, I was kicking and screaming. It was the it was was the least favorite part of my of my day. Was was uh, you know I wanted to be out you know playing ball with my friends and and I wasn't. I was sitting at home doing scales and practicing you know these different pieces and so forth and so on. And of course, when you're starting out, it, there's, there's not a lot of um, uh, musical satisfaction that comes with you know what what you're doing. So uh, it, it it was a, a like like most like most kids who started playing piano. Um, it, it was a very, very tedious affair. Uh, you know, we, we moved to, to New York from Paris when I was, uh, I think, five, five and a half. And a year later, the piano showed up, and a year after that, the teacher showed up. And that was pretty much my life until I was 16. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but, but I mean, I was classically trained, and it, it didn't take long. You know, the, the beauty of, of forcing a kid to play, even if he doesn't want to, of course, it's easy to say that looking back through the, the looking glass, is that um, when you're forced to do something, and you keep doing it, um, chances are you're, go- you're going to get better at it. And by the time you get better at it, then you could decide, well, yes, I like this, or no, I don't like this. 
And for, for me, the, 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 the epiphany came when um, I was, uh, um, I, I, like, like everybody else, I wanted to be in a band, and, and, and my parents had a reservations about that ever happening, um, because heaven forbid the kids should, you know, go out and meet girls and whatever. But um, a, a very, very, very good friend of mine um, was, a, um, uh, was a drummer in a band, and I went, uh, he invited me to his rehearsal. And at that rehearsal, uh, I, it was my first time around you know, a band actually playing uh, outside of like a professional venue or something. And they were great. They, they, they mostly did Doors covered, covers, and they did them to my, to my young ear flawlessly. And it was really all about the keyboard player, a kid named Johnny Cobert, who was just um, a phenomenal, or again, a little Farfisa organ. He played effortless, effortlessly, flawlessly, like Ray Manzarek. He did the, all the bass with his left hand, and he sang, sang the vocals as well. They, they were amazing. And it really bummed me out that, that this kid who was about my age was so freaking good. I was just like, how, do, how does he do that? I mean, it, it, like I said, it sounded just like the record. And uh, while I was crying in my milk about it one, one day, my, my mom asked me, what's, what's your problem today? Because, you know, I was a cranky kid. I said, well, you know, I've been playing now. It was probably six years I've been playing, um, five or six years, whatever it was. And, uh, you know, and I heard this kid, and he's just so good. Um, you know, I, I'm, I, I, it bums me out that, you know, that, that he's that much better than me. And my mom, in a, in a unique moment of, of lucidity, she said, well, why don't you find out who his teacher is? And it was like the sky opened, the sun shined down, and I'm like, what a great idea. Yeah. So Johnny was kind enough to tell me who his teacher was, a gentleman by the name of Teddy Harris, an old jazz guy. And I started studying with him, and it didn't take long before everything changed. Um, studying with this guy open my eyes to what music is supposed to be it's it's not a bunch of dots on a piece of paper that are, that are there to, to torture you as you're forced to sit in front of it day after day instead of doing what you really want to do i mean he explained to me what what they represent in terms of somebody having created these 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 works of music and so forth of course by this time i was a reasonably good uh, kid you know child classical player um but but this guy being a jazz guy he started teaching me a little bit about theory and, and, and taught me to listen to things differently than I had listened to them. And uh, almost in an or organic way, I had a completely different relationship with music from, from that point moving forward. And one, of the, one of the earliest things he told me was, it's going to be interesting to see what happens to you in like, you know, 10 years. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm glad you think it'll be interesting because I think it's, you know, <laughs> going to be a dead-end road going nowhere. Um, but but al almost to the calendar, 10 years later, I was when I wound up in Dio. So, uh, yeah, it, 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 Ted, Ted had a great deal to do with um, changing my perception of how, uh, how music fits into, 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 our, into our universe, into our world, into our personal lives. And uh, one, once that understanding became uh, integrated in, into who I, who I was as a kid, um, it was a whole different ballgame. You know, then, then it dawned on me very early on that this is really what I want to be doing. I remember I saw Zeppelin at, at, the, at the Garden in, I want to say, 69, maybe 70, uh, one, one of the earliest Zeppelin shows. And, and I was just in awe of, of, the, of the community, of, the, of the, the, the power, the majesty that, that came with being a band like that and, and having 16,000 people in the palm of your hand and... What, I mean, it, it really, again, going back to my original comment, it, it really felt like a religion. And um, I thought, well, you know, that, that's fine and dandy, but there's no way I'm ever going to be a guy sitting on stage in Madison Square Garden. And it was maybe 10, 11 years later, sure enough, there I was. So 
that that's long and short of it. That that's kind of how it all came to pass. I can imagine. I mean, what's, when, like you said, when you're on that stage in Madison Square Garden, performing in front of all those people, thinking back of when you were a kid going there, seeing bands, and saying, "Oh my God, I hated taking these piano lessons when I was so young. I didn't think it was going to go anywhere." Does that ever cross your mind when that curtain opens up and you see all those people out there for the first time, knowing that they're there to see you and your band? Oh man, absolutely. Talk, talk about talk about the endorphin rush. That is the one. And and fortunately, I've, I I don't know where this came from, but but I always had the, the notion that as great as this ride is, there's no way it's going to last forever because nothing does. And I always tried to take a, a, a couple of moments, you know, when the intro tape was just finishing before we'd go out and start, you know, start the show, to just almost in a zen way go within myself and just absorb the energy of that anticipation, knowing that the people were there and knowing that because it was Ronnie, there was going to be yet another unbelievable show, um, and just, just savor that that. Um, the, the, again, I hate, to, I hate to keep using the same words, but the, the, the majesty of that moment. So yes, it, it, it always occurred to me. Yeah, you know, and you just said something that's like you were saying, you know, nothing lasts forever. You don't know how long this ride's going to go on for. As a musician, as a professional musician, is that something that you really got to account for from the day you joined a band saying, it might last a day, it might last a month, it could go 30 years. I don't know, but we're going to make the most out of it, and when it ends, I can't have any regrets. Well, you know, actually what you just described is pretty much a pretty good blueprint for life in general because none of us know anything, right? It's, yep. it's all about the moment. Whether, whether you're, you know, a, a chef in a, in a, in a five-star restaurant or you're flipping burgers at McDonald's or you're, you know, uh, performing surgery on, uh, on, 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 on life-threatened patients, nobody knows what the next day is going to bring them. So it's, it's a pretty good idea to... At, at least work on a um, a philosophy that allows you to may, maybe not as as much as you know uh, we're supposed to, but at least allows a component of your attention to be focused on appreciating the moment, appreciating what life is now. Because at the end of the day, if you really do the analysis, all we ever have are those moments. And, and you know we we spend so much time worrying about the future and regretting the past, and in many cases. It's at the expense of, of appreciating what we have at the time we have it. So, uh, for whatever reason, I, I, I always had a, you know a little a little bit of philosophy floating around in my head, and um, and it, it didn't it didn't hurt that I was doing something I never dreamed I'd I'd get to do. Um, so, I, I think I, I think the real the one of the real secrets is to to to, to be paying attention to what's going on, um, especially if it's something good. You know, you know the old saying: you, you don't know what you have until you lose it. Well, you, you, you don't you don't want that to apply if you can help it. You know, you, you want to know what you have when you have it. Um, you have time to regret it once it's gone, but you know you don't want to live in fear of what the future is going to going to bring because that you know that that just undermines um, uh, any any real chance for happiness, right? That's so very true. And you know, Claude, you know, most people here in New York will say, you know, like, you know, New York City was the scene. That's where everything was taking place within the five boroughs, Manhattan. But we had a great scene going on upstate New York. I mean, Ronnie came from Cortland, his cousin Rock and the Rods came from there. Billy Sheenan was upstate. There were so many things going on upstate at that time, late seventies, early eighties. And you were a part of that that scene for quite some time. I mean, what was it like back then up there? So it's funny you should bring that up because when, when when I decided to go up to up to Buffalo to go to school, um, p- part of the incentive was that I, I was getting really burnt out on, on being in the city. I, I I couldn't deal with living at home anymore. Um, it, it was I had I you know it's the old 
kind of the arrogant, been there, done that kind of thing. Um, I, but mostly, I, I just needed to get away from my folks. I needed to, to spread my wings and see, you know, see where where I was going to take myself. And I, honestly, I, I looked at I looked at the, at the map of New York. I saw the furthest place that my scholarship <laughs> would take me, and it literally from Brooklyn to Buffalo, you can't get much further apart than that. And that, and that's why I chose Buffalo. And it turned out to be an inspired decision. Because it wasn't long before actually uh, I met Billy and we, we got to be fast friends. And the thing was, the way this all went down, I was, I was living in the dorms and, and, and the guy who I was friends with said, like, yeah, well, there's this great band playing at a club. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I've seen some great bands. I, I used to go spend my, my weekends in the village, you know, uh, with, with, you know, everybody. And, and this is Buffalo. What, what, what are you guys going to have up here? Because I'm telling you, you're, you're going to be surprised. Okay, fine. So off we go. We, we walk into the, to, to the club. I believe it was a club called McVans, if I'm remembering correctly. And on the stage, the, on, on, the, on, the, um, on stage right, there were two, two uh, double stacks of marshals, so four marshal cabinets, two heads. Um, there was a big drum riser with a huge chrome set of um, John Bonham-inspired um, uh, uh, chrome Ludwig drums. And on, the, uh, on stage left, there were three SVT bass amps, which were like the standard uh, workhorse bass amp of the day. And I, I walked in, and my, I vividly remember my first thought was, wow, these, these guys' parents must have a lot of money. <laughs> and, and, then, and then Talis walked out on stage, um, looking like they were playing at, you know, uh, the Budokan or something, um, you know, platforms and, and uh, outfits and the whole thing. And I'm like, all right, how good are these guys going to be? And they just, I, f- I felt like, the, I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, but there was a, there used to be an ad for JBL, or maybe it was maybe it was Max Elfay, but it's a guy sitting in a in a in the chair, chair yeah. in front of the speaker with his hair. That yep. they started playing, and to this day, I'm pretty sure that's the best band I've ever seen. Man, they just were insane. They were just so freaking good. And then and then all of a sudden, Billy starts taking off on on you know the, the, the his style of playing, which I had never seen before. Even though Billy freely admits that he kind of based his style on, on Timmy Bogart from The Fudge, which is another Brooklyn band. Um, but it's, by the way, not only a Brooklyn band, but Vinnie and Carmine lived like maybe maybe two miles from, from where I grew up. And, and we never met um, in, in Brooklyn when we lived there together. It wasn't until we were out in L.A. that we all became friends. But anyway, um, after seeing the show, I, you know, I approached Billy. I said, man, i got to tell you, I've never seen anybody do anything like this on bass before. And, uh, and he, he was very humble and very, you know, very kind. Um, and we got, we got to be friends. We started hanging out, and we, we ended up playing together pretty regularly. Just, just you know, casually, he'd, he'd come up to, uh, to, to uh, the house I was living in off campus and bring his bass. And I had my Hammond at the time, and we would do uh, box two and three-part invention classical stuff. And you'd think the keyboard player would get to do two of the parts, and Billy would do the third. But no, Billy would do two of the parts. And, oh, yeah, you, you, you just do the one. I'm like, come on, man. I got two heads. Don't you know? Um, but yes, the, the music scene in, in Buffalo, and as I learned, not only Buffalo. So there was a band called. Uh, oh no, you're in the city. So th- do you remember Black Sheep by any chance? Sure, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So Black Sheep, uh, those guys were from Rochester, which was a you know a short hour drive away. Um, uh, Lou Gramatico, better known as Lou Graham. Um, you know, there, there were there were tons of bands that had some really really great players in them. So I I think th- there's uh, a little bit of. Um, uh, I don't know if chauvinism is the right word, but whatever town you live in, you think you got the best ball team, you think you got the best music, mm-hmm. you think you got the best everything. But there, you know, every, every town kind of has that same perception, and and Buffalo was no exception. And um, you know, honestly, I, I can't remember ever going to see a band in Buffalo that 
all right, maybe they weren't all as good as, as, as Billy's band Talus, but I don't remember seeing any bands that sucked. I really don't. It was definitely a great time for music in general, but from there, I mean, now, do you, now you take your act out to L.A., because I guess really that's where everything was kind of happening at that time. Yep. And and was it, did Joe go with you out there? Did you run into Joe out there? Because you guys sort of got rough cut going. So when you're talking about Joe, you're referring to Joe Cristofanelli? The finale, yeah. Wow, so you know Joe. Do you, do you know Joe personally? Not personally, but I know that some of the bands he was in. Yeah, you should. You should, you should uh, we should talk about putting you two, two, two guys in touch. Yeah, Joe. Joe <laughs> meeting Joe was was uh, an amazing thing. Well, um, uh, I, I, I should I should um, uh, add here that I'm actually working on an autobiography, and the working title for the book was going to be "My Best Friends Have Always Been Drummers," because they kind of always had been. And uh, that 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 kid who took me to his band's rehearsal that was where they did the Doors covers covers where I met Johnny Covert, um, he, he was a drummer with a band called Lost Horizon. Um, then I became f- uh, friends with a with an unbelievably talented drummer in Buffalo, a guy named Pete O'Donnell, and uh, we, we we were you know we were jamming and stuff. And he was, you know I I know this really good bass player, so we we he introduced me to Joe. At least that's how I remember it. I, it might have been the other way around. Joe introduced me to Pete, but I'm not sure. In any case. Um, Joe and I just hit it off right away. Became we became really, really fast friends, and uh, you know we we uh, oh P.S. Joe Cristofanelli, do I have to tell you how good a cook his mom was? <laughs> you may as well. Hey, come on, you're Italian. You know you're going to be a good cook. I'm telling you, man. I walked into his house. You know Buffalo. There's like snow everywhere up to the yeah. you know up to the tops of cars and stuff. <clears throat> and the first time I went out to his, I mean, we had I, I don't even know if we'd met at a studio or if we had found a pizza house. But the first time I went to Joe's house. I, you know, I, I parked on the street and I go down the driveway to the side door because every, nobody uses front doors, right? And and I open the door and this this smell just wafted over me that, and I, I mean I used to go to Mama Leone's in New York and there was a place in Brooklyn called um, uh, Casa Doro, which was a oh yeah House of Gold of course, which was a great great Italian restaurant in Brooklyn. Nothing compared to the scents that were emanating from uh, from Mary's kitchen. Wow. It was just like you know, forget music. I just wanted to be there for the food. It was just <laughs> insane. And of course, with with that kind of of, of um, uh, uh, culinary excellence comes the the big hearted woman who's behind the stove. And and Joe's mom was just you know the the earth mother of earth mothers. She was just so welcoming. Maybe I mean before I even had my coat off, sit down. You're gonna eat something. <laughs> like no, I'm not, I'm really, I just sit down, take off your coat, have some sauce, and check out. The, and Joe's like, "Don't argue with her. Just, just, just try this bread." And she used to make this bread, this sesame bread that was, oh my God, Maron, as they used to say. Yep, just the, the best ever. <laughs> so, so, you know, may, maybe my my attraction to Joe had something to do with you know how how how, how well I ate at his at his mom's house. <laughs> but Joe and I got to be really fast friends. And when we decided that, um, uh, well, when I, you know, I told him that my plan was to eventually go to California. And they were, oh, you know, maybe, maybe we should go together. And, we, you know, we talked about it. And um, we actually ended up playing in a cover band for a while to, to a, a really silly cover band just to, just to raise the funds to have pocket money to, you know, gas and breakdowns and whatever else. And, uh, yeah, Joe and I um, and, and a, a friend of Joe's kid brother, a guy named Tom Kelleher, uh, did the trip with us. And the three of us drove cross country. Every day was laced with another problem, another breakdown, another setback. But, you know, we made the trip. We got out here. Um, Tom, bless his heart, he had a job waiting for him at, at Fender Guitars down in Anaheim. And then Joe and I drove from Anaheim up to L.A., and, um, uh, you know, we, we found a place to stay. And, yeah, so 
it, it, it took a little while before you know we, we found our footing, but um, I think within a year or two there was there was a band called Magic that we were in together. That's right. That was before Rough Cut. Yes, yes, that that was uh, right. That that was before Rough Cut, and um, then of course when you know Rough Cut came along, and uh, that that was the next uh, uh, the next brick in the wall, if you will. Um, and uh, and actually, Rough Cut had the, as, as I'm sure you and perhaps many of your listeners know, had had the good fortune to fall under the attention of uh, of Wendy Dio, and she became our manager. And this is where the story kind of got interesting because suddenly now, um, uh, and, and actually, Rough Cut in its in its original incarnation, not to say anything about the you know the following ones, but the band that we were originally is was not was not reflected in in the. Um, following incarnations. I mean, the original band, uh, you know, Jake Ely was playing guitar, um, Joe was playing bass, Paul Shortino, of course, singing, myself on keyboards, and um, we, we we were very, very like-minded. Um, we, we were very, very much about the songs. I, th- I think if you look hard enough, you could probably find um, on YouTube a couple of tracks. There's a track called uh, A Little Kindness and another track called um, Used and Abused. Used and Abused. Yeah. Yeah, th- th- those are the two. Um and uh, th- those those were our um, uh, those those were our you know our our, our, our originals uh, that um, were slated to get recorded on I think it was a record called LA's Best Unsigned Bands. Fortunately, by the time um, the possibility of, of, of having our work uh, showcased on that record, along with other local bands, um, Wendy Wendy was already uh, well ensconced in, in the management seat, and she persuaded Ronnie. To come along and, and produce the um, the tracks for us, which um, turned out to be a very uh, pr- prophetic experience because it was my first time in the studio with with Ronnie producing. So uh, anybody who's ever been in a studio or, or knows you know even anything about it, the, the musicians and the producer develop hopefully a very synergistic relationship. So Ronnie and I really got to know each other well. Um, but but even before that, before Wendy uh, decided that she would take on the band, we. we uh, we did a showcase um, for her and her business partner, um, a woman by the name of Patty Stein, the wife of uh, keyboard player extraordinaire Mark Stein from Vanilla Fudge Days. Funny how it all leads back to Brooklyn, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so we're, we we rented a studio at SIR and we had our gear set up, and we, we were pretty cocky. We were pretty arrogant. You know, we, we'd been uh, doing what we were doing a long time. Um, so we, we weren't really nervous about it, but the, you know, so we were just go, running through the tunes. The door opens, and in walks Wendy, and you know, unmistakable in her in her um, platinum hair, and uh, behind her, Patty Stein with you know beautiful long locks down to her butt, and behind her, in walks Ronnie, which I don't think any of us in the band expected. So that was kind of like, whoa, that, that's freaking Ronnie James Dio over there! Holy crap! And behind him. Which took an extra notch off of my uh, my my shaking knees was Mark Stein. Wow! Who you know, yeah, you know, incredible Hammond player. So so they all walk in and we, you know we finish our song and we we stop playing and 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 uh, Wendy's like hello guys and Ronnie gets up off the couch and he comes up to the stage and he comes right up to me and he shakes my hand and he goes hi I'm I'm Ronnie. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, he goes, oh, this is interesting, Rig. You know, we were talking about, and he he was talking to me. I, I think the second thing or third thing he said to, uh, was, yeah, you know, we we both went to the same school. I guess we're we're like alumni. I'm like, well, yeah, because Ron, I don't know if you know, Ronnie was a student at UB as well. Yes, yeah. Pharmacy. Pharmacy, yeah. 
Yeah. So so and then then he goes over and he says hi to Paul and then he meets Jake and 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 instantly it it felt like like we had leapt beyond the uh, the shackles of being another unknown band and here we are now we're all friends with Ronnie. I mean that honestly on that day that would have been enough. I mean we were all just elated beyond words and um, uh, we 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 played I don't know how many songs we played but quite a few and. Um, uh, Ronnie had to leave. I, I think he had to go into to the record plant. He was doing something with, I'm guessing, Sabbath at the time. Yeah, of course. And um, uh, Wendy, Wendy walked out with him, and she came back, and she goes, well, guys, um, Ronnie liked you, so yes, I'll, I'll, I'll take you under my wing. And that was it. Suddenly we had management. And within a couple of months, this, this uh, unsigned, uh, L.A.'s unsigned artist thing came up, and uh, Wendy informed us that she had convinced Ronnie to go into the studio with us and produce um, whatever songs we were going to record, the aforementioned used and abused in a little kindness. And um, that, that was just an experience I, I can't even begin to describe. To, 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 to not only be, be, be friends with the guy or, or to at least have a casual relationship with him, but, but to have, have his hands on the sliders for the music that, that we were trying to create. That it was almost hand of God kind of thing, you know? And as it turns out, and I didn't even realize this at the time, it was, in fact, it was decades later when um, Angelo Arcuri, another name that should be familiar to you and your listeners, I'm guessing, yes? Yeah. yeah Angelo, the, um, uh, the, the, the gentleman who engineered all of the Dio records, or at least most of the Dio records. I, I guess there was a, a hole in the, in the chronology somewhere. Um, but he, he was also, um, uh, he also did live sound for Sabbath, and, which, is, which is how... All right, so just in case people don't know, the long and short story, Angelo and Vinnie Apice were best friends. Um, when Vinnie got the gig to uh, join Sabbath, he needed a roadie. Angelo was working at the record plant in New York um, at the time, but he, he took a sabbatical so he could go on the road with his good buddy. I mean, who wouldn't? You go on the road with Black Sabbath? Yeah, I think that, that probably yeah. trumps any other option. So, um, and then the way I remember the story, their sound guy <clears> had <throat> food poisoning or something, and uh, uh, you know, Angelo was still humping, humping drums for Vinny, and Ronnie remembered that he had worked at the, the record plant. He goes, "Well, you, you've been, you, you worked in the studio." And Angelo was like, "Yeah, but uh, you know, I, I, I just, you know, I was like a third engineer. I didn't really, you know." And Angelo, and Ronnie's like, "That's fine. You're, you're doing it." By this time, he had listened to the set often enough, and clearly, he knew Vinny's drums well because you know he had been Vinny's best friend since childhood. And, and his roadie, so he knew what, you know, how, how all the mics were positioned and so forth. And the way the story goes, Sabbath sounded better live when Angelo mixed them than they had ever sounded before. Um, and it was discovered that, what do you know, this guy has a great pair of ears. So when Ronnie left Sabbath to start the Dio project, of course, Angelo went with him. And the plan was that um, Angelo would engineer and Ronnie would, would produce. But the first time they actually were in the studio together, um, if you will, uh, testing their 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 plan to to work together was when they were in the studio with Rough Cut doing those those two songs um, for us, and uh, clearly the, the the chemistry worked because this I don't I don't even want to do the math as to how how many years ago that was, but if you listen to those tracks now they still sound great. Absolutely, I mean, they, they, they did they did an amazing job. Um, so that that was that was a match made in heaven. Ronnie was uh, uh, really had foresight when when he. Uh, uh, coaxed Angelo into getting behind the, behind the console, both live and then uh, again in the studio. And of course, the, the other secret ingredient, the secret sauce that nobody really ever figured out, but although I, I don't know why, because it seems pretty obvious to me, 
um, one of the, one of the biggest accolades that that we ever got as a band in Dio was how much we sounded like the record. And it's you know everybody always wants to take credit when you, you know you, you never like anybody as much as somebody who's complimenting you on something that you didn't know you did. But sure, okay, yeah, we yeah it's because we're so great, you know. But in truth. The reason we sounded so much like the record, okay, yeah, what, you know, Ronnie was a great taskmaster. He he didn't settle for second. In, in fact, his word, second best, isn't. Um, uh, we had the same guy behind the, the, the behind the console when we played live, as we had in the studio when we were recording. So not only did he know where all the different parts were, not, not only did he know how everything was supposed to sound, but more importantly, he knew. What what you weren't supposed to hear at different parts. For example, uh, 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 during during a guitar, oh, it's the most obvious example. During a guitar solo, I mean, pretty much any sound guy is going to know you, you you move up the the, the the sound of the guitar, the volume, yeah. so the, the the solo becomes louder. But but things like the placement of the drums across the stereo field. I mean, he just he had studio sensibilities and applied them to to live shows. Which I, you know, I had seen that in a, in a few, like for, in the early days of, of going to see Genesis, for example, they really sounded like their record as well. That was just mind blowing. But it was for the same reason. I, I don't know if, if their live guy was the same guy who was in the studio with them, but certainly whoever did their sound live made a study of of how the how the soundscape was supposed to be painted. And that that that's something in the rock world I don't think really uh, uh, happened in, in the in the earliest days anyway. So I, 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 for one, credit Angelo completely with, with making us sound live as good as we did. That's very true. You know, there's that continuous flow from, you know, studio to live, so it does kind of help out that he's familiar with the band and the music. And I think if more bands kind of work that way, he'd be much better sound than band live. Absolutely. Well, the other thing, too, is, and this, this helped, and, and some bands can't can make this claim, we did sound exactly like we sounded in the studio. There, there, there was nothing, Ronnie, Ronnie absolutely eschewed any possibilities of using studio tricks to do things that we couldn't do live. He said, yeah, well, what are we going to do live? And of course, me, the idiot, I'm like, oh, I could sample it. And the look I got would, would freeze ice. It was just like, all right, okay, I get it. We're not, we're not cheating. Okay, fair enough. And, and, but, but that was important to him. I mean, Ronnie was a, re, you know, he was a, for starters, he was a brilliant artist, but he was, he was, he was an old school artist. You know, the, the whole notion of using technology to make you, make you sound like something you weren't that, that that really was under his skin. Um, That's true. So, so there there was yeah there there was there was no I mean even I I, I did do sampling uh, full disclosure but mostly most of the samples I did were um, things like like explosions like sound effects that in in venues where because of the the fire marshal we couldn't use pyro or whatever um, we didn't have to sacrifice the impact of the show because I could I could literally emulate the sound of the explosion using my sampler. But as far as like uh, cheating with harmonies or any of that kind of stuff, never at all, never at all. It shouldn't be the way. But I think you know I, I could have sworn not long ago Vinnie Appice did an interview. He said Ronnie used some pre-recorded vocals here and there. I, I don't know if I I read that right. I'm not sure. He was talking about other people that were doing it. I think he mentioned Ronnie, but I don't see that actually ever happening. That if if that happened, it was after I was um, well out of the purview of the of the band. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, but but you know, I I find that really hard to believe. The the last, you know what? I I don't think that's true. The the last time I saw actually I saw Vinny and Ronnie live together um, was uh, in July of 2009. They played the Greek Theater here in um, in L.A. and. Um, uh, my, my good buddy Jay and I were fortunate enough that we were able to get laminate, so we were watching the show 
from from the side of the stage, which was just incredible, as you might imagine, especially with Brian May standing behind us. I mean, how cool is that, right? Um, I, I don't know if you know, but Brian May and Tony Iommi are, are, are best friends. They were school chums in, in secondary school or something. Oh, that I don't um, know. But, 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 but I, I saw Ronnie's lips move, and I heard, know what I heard, and, and it was him. It was all him. I'm sure, no, I, I apologize. It was He was talking about Black Sabbath when they did the reunion, and he was singing the song, I. Ah. That's what he was talking about. Not not with the, not with your band, with the Dio band, but with, with Black Sabbath. That's what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. And that was many many years uh, later, and it was the chorus he said. Right. That 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 sounds. I mean, you know, even at that though, at least it was all him, right? It wasn't it wasn't any electronically enhanced whatever. Um, like for example, in the in the, uh, I'm I'm assuming you've seen your share of Dio shows. Oh, I have quite a few. Yeah. <laughs> Probably more so, than so, two dozen. So remember the the the, uh, the crystal ball that was underneath the drum riser. Yep. Greetings, my friend. <laughs> also, all of that 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 was clearly that was a recording. He didn't he didn't read the line every single show. Sure. Because there was processing on the voice to give it that that very deep and uh, uh, mysterious kind of sound. So things like that were were were, were pre-recorded. But that's that that's not the same as. Well, bands that I won't mention who actually run run a run a, a stream of audio of of vocals that are not actually being produced on the stage, you know, to, to create the illusion that people are singing when they're not. There's a lot of bands doing that today, more more than you could imagine. <laughs> well, believe me, I can't imagine. Um, <laughs> yeah. And even 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 some bands that I like, I I, I won't share this with with um, with with your listeners because. If, if if I were in that band, I, I wouldn't want it shared either. But 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 sometimes on bands that are really vocally eloquent, um, it, it's tricky to be able to to do live what what you can do in the studio, especially if the harmonies are you know uh, very very precise, and mostly if they're a cappella, there's very very little room for fudging. So some bands, like I said, who will remain nameless, I know had had had. Bits that were sampled and they, and they triggered them live, but but at least again it it was it was their voices you know and and on any given night I'm pretty sure they I think that was done for the benefit of the fans more than anything else because they, you you wouldn't want to cut out a, a song because you were worried that uh, you might somebody might have a sore throat or an itchy you know whatever and then suddenly you can't do the harmonies which are a significant part of the track so you have the insurance of having your 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 own vocals pre-recorded that you could play but it's one thing to add bits and pieces within a song like you said harmonies as opposed to somebody's lead vocal that was pre-recorded because the guy can't sing on stage and there's that happens in many many cases there's a lot but you know take out the fact that you're a musician a songwriter somebody that's up on stage playing all the time and just go to like you being a fan that means a fan when I go see a band live you know I don't care if it sounds like the record I know that the records are going to sound one way because they're produced in the studio there's a lot of things added to them and a lot of things can't be recreated live and you can always fix things in the studio to make it sound better but when I go to see a band live I want to see the band live I don't, like Iron Maiden you know when they record live records, they leave a lot of the mistakes and the flubs in there. They don't even take them out because that's part of playing live. That's the fun of it. That's the thrill of it. So as a as a fan of music, do you prefer to go to a show and see the band make all those little errors and those mistakes and those little flubs, or would you prefer to hear it exactly like the record? It, it depends on the band. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm, as a musician, I mean, look, nobody, nobody's perfect, and if you are perfect, you're not perfect all the time. So I, I, I don't think... That, that mistakes are the crime that, that, that people make them out to be. 
Um, so, some, some of the best I- ideas I've ever had were the result of mistakes that I'd made. And I'm like, well, you know, that, that doesn't suck, though. I should save that for something else. Um, I mean, it, you know, m- making mistakes is, is, is part, of the, part of being human. And, and if you get, you know, five guys together, that's five humans who are prone to possibly making, again, mistakes, if you want to call them that. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't really put a lot of stock in the band sounding exactly like the record. But in, in, in our case, I, I should clarify, even though we sounded like the record, meaning the, 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 the audio content, the, 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 um, uh, the, the, how do I describe this, the actual sounds themselves yeah. and the, the, the positioning of the mix and all of that, our, 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 the, the songs as we played them live were very rarely the same as they were on the record. Um, in fact, Ronnie was 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 kind of a big fan of of throwing in little um, what do they call them in the film industry? Uh, oh, there's a word for this, and I'm not going to be able to think of it. I'm sure. Uh, no, it's it's, it's 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 like little inside joke kinds of things that that they'll put in a movie. Easter um, eggs. Um, that's Eas- it. Easter eggs. Yeah, you, when you said oh, little inside God, things, was... I got it. <laughs> yep. Uh, nicely done. Nicely done. So R- Ronnie would do that, and a, a lot of times, for example, we would we would I, I can't remember what the organizations were, but we would segue like you know Holy Diver into Last in Line into uh, All the Fool Sailed Away, and then come back to Holy Diver at the end. You know those kinds of collages of different songs, which clearly nobody ever heard on a record. So in that respect, it's it's a live show. It's it's you know uh, kind of done on the fly. And, and surely most solos were never done exactly as they are on the record. Um, I'm sure Viv and Craig did the, you know, to, did the part that they thought guitar players would be looking for as they performed their solos, as I did with, with, uh, when I started doing keyboard solos as well. But, um, but by and large, uh, you know, music is a, a very fluid uh, art. It, I, I think it's, it's the, the, let's call them imperfections that, that give it yeah. real character. Yeah. I yeah, couldn't agree more. Things, you know, yeah, he would he would he would he would sing some bits that were that were different, and like for example, I, so you remember, and a little white light shined down on me, and it was just uh, myself and Ronnie singing the, the that in um, uh, what it was a Sabbath tune. Um, it's heaven and hell, right? Heaven and hell, yeah, yeah. Um, so so on occasion, um, uh, he he would he would change the melody a little bit, um, whether he did it on purpose or accidentally i don't know but when he did i i was as tuned as a person can be to someone else and i would i would modify the the background chords that i was playing against his vocal and every you know every so often he'd, he'd turn around and he'd give me like a thumbs up and a wink that i caught it as if as if i as, as if i'd still have a gig if i didn't but anyway <laughs> um and 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 we would some and on a couple of occasions i remember he, he really he really went outside a little bit and, and he he gave well, I guess he gave me the opportunity to, to just kind of like play freely with him. Now, he did that a lot with the guitar players. They would trade, you know, he'd sing a line and Craig would mimic the line on guitar and, they'd, you know, they would trade off back and forth like that. He did that with Richie as well and, and with Tony. But um, since I didn't have any isolated uh, uh, parts to do with Ronnie other than the little white light bit, on a couple of occasions he would sing something differently and I would... I, I would play along, and that 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 oh man, that was the coolest thing ever. Because that was like sitting in my room at home and just jamming with with a friend. You know, it was like the hell that the sixteen thousand people were out there. This is just us, like you know, enjoying ourselves. 
That's so cool. You know, Claire, kind of going back to Rough Cut a little bit, when you talk about recording that demo and, you know, Wendy's representing you now, Ronnie's there producing it, you know, a, a, a couple of guys unknown to everybody else at that point in time, Paul Shatino, what a great singer, you know, especially today, he's with King Cobra, he did Quiet Riot, he's got Rough Cut going, Jakey Lee went on to Ozzy, I mean, you know, and other stuff, Badlands. I mean, when you think about everything you guys did back then, I mean, this is like what the music industry is about. You say to yourselves, how did this band not make it? We had the songs, we had the looks, we had the people represented us, we had Ronnie involved in it, and it just didn't happen. And that's the, you know, the, the sad part about music. But years later, Jakey wound up with Ozzy, you were in Ronnie's band, and, you know, things always kind of work out in the end for, for different reasons. But you have to say, so how did we not make it as Rough Cut? Well, are you a fan of, of motor racing by any chance? No, not really. Yeah. Well, I can tell you that, that no, nobody sponsors like an IndyCar team or a NASCAR team or a Le Mans uh, race team um, with the intention of not winning the race. True. But <laughs> only one person can win. Now, of course, that, that, all right, that, that might be a little broad of a brush to, to paint this metaphor with. But the thing is, you know, there are, there are so many things involved in, in reaching that finish line that we call success. Um, more often than not, <clears throat> it doesn't have to do with the, the, the qualifications or the merit of the people who are trying to achieve it. As often as not, it has to do with just blind luck. Um, I can't think of who it is, but, but somebody, somebody notable had a really good record that was released um, on the day that George Bush Sr. Uh, took military action in the, in the Mideast. And that was the only thing anybody was focused on for a month. And as a result, that record just, just went away. I can't yeah. remember who. I, used, I promise you, I used to know who it was, but I, I don't anymore. But, but things like that happen. You know, it, 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 there's just no accounting for that. Um, uh, it, I, think, I think that's the serendipitous nature of life in general, that, you know, you, you do the best you can do, and you prepare as best you can. But at, at, the, at 11.59 and 59 seconds, the thing that's going to make the difference at midnight is, you know, how the stars are aligned, how the planets are aligned, what, what is actually happening at that moment in time. You know, maybe, maybe the, the difference between success and failure is uh, the guy who should have heard the band uh, didn't get to because he had a cold and he couldn't go to the club that night. Somebody else went and they didn't like the band. It, it could be any, I mean, literally an infinite number of possible things make the difference between what we call success and failure. Um, which is why I, I, I try to, uh, to, to, to advise people that you really shouldn't think of anything artistic as a competitive sport, because it's not. Just, just because somebody doesn't enjoy the success that somebody else does, 99.5% of the time, that has no reflection on the actual merit of the, of the creation. It has to do with countless other things. True. Well, you know what? That meeting obviously is what led you to joining Ronnie's band. By that time, I mean, Holy Diver was already out, and you never, even though Ronnie had the reputation from Rainbow and Black Sabbath, you never know if it's going to parlay into the next band. You don't know if it's going to take off. You know, it doesn't always work that way. But they made it with Holy Diver, and the band became well known. You joined the band right after mm -hmm. that, and I mean, and you know, for most of the eighties, at least eighty-seven, eighty-eight, when you left the band, I mean, it couldn't have been any better musically. I don't think. I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I mean, Ronnie was the most capable captain of a ship I could ever have imagined. Um, uh, not, not only did he have the vision, not only did he have the talent, not only did he have the work ethic, but he had the personality where he, and I've, I've, I've been in the studio with hundreds, 
at least hundreds of, of, of different producers. And, you know, they, they all claim to know what they want, and, and in some cases maybe they do, but as often as not, their ability to get that out of you, <clears throat> yeah, no, not really. Uh, actually, do you know who Leland Sklar is by any chance? No, I don't. The name doesn't sound familiar. Leland Sklar is probably the, the most widely recorded bass player in history. Um, and when I describe him to you, you'll know exactly who he is. He's a tall guy, very, very long gray hair, very thin on top, long, long white beard. And yep. he played in the Phil Collins videos. Yeah. And he played the Annie Lennox videos. And he's, he's played with, he's played with, he's, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he played with like Sinatra. And, you know, I mean, he, he's the guy. And I just saw a video that he posted either, either it was on Facebook or YouTube or something. And he's, 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 he has one of his God knows how many bases. And uh, he goes, well, this is a bass I've used probably on more records and whatever. He's used to talking about the instrument. And he goes, people always ask me about this little toggle switch here. And there was a little switch down by where the four, you know, the four knobs are for volume and so forth. And he, go, and he, and he flicks it back and forth. And he goes, uh, this, is, this is what I call my producer switch. So when I go into the studio and if I play a part and the t- producer speaks back to me over the talk back and he says, well, you know, that was really good, but could you make it sound a little bit? And then he'll use some adjective. And I, I, just, I just talk back to him. I go, yeah, said, no problem. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of that. I flick the switch and I'll play the part with my hand in a slightly different position. And he'll talk back after the take. So that was perfect. Whatever you did, that was it. And by the way, the switch isn't connected to anything. <laughs> so that, that just in a nutshell, that, that's kind of like the, 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 the paradigm for producers. Ronnie, on the other hand, he got shit out of me, excuse my French, that I never would have believed I was capable of doing. I mean, we, Ronnie and I together, all, all, all due respect, mostly Ronnie, he knew what he wanted in keyboards for the, for the D.O. records. But, and, and I, I was, you know, I'd been playing a long time. I, I thought I was pretty good. I, I was pretty sure I could do whatever he wanted me to. But the trick was, he couldn't tell me what it was because it only existed in his mind as, as an abstract. He knew, he knew how he wanted to feel when the right keyboard part would be created and played and performed and, and, and have, have the right sound uh, ascribed to it and all of that. And it, 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 took a, it took a lot of patience. It took a lot of time. But the, the brilliant man that Ronnie was, he was able to, to, to guide me down this invisible path to find what he didn't know he was looking for, if, if, if you follow my, my, my train of thought. Sure, there. yeah. And, and that, that is a priceless quality in, in, a, in, a, um, in a producer. And for, for Ronnie to be producing his own vision, it made it that much more of a fulfilling uh, uh, opportunity because he, he knew what he wanted. And he, he had the patience, he had the time, um, he had the success and the track record that he didn't have some record company breathing down his neck, save for the desire for, for Warner Brothers wanting another rainbow in the dark, to, to, to just mold us all into who he wanted us to be. Some, some of the less inspired of us might think that they did it by themselves, but I, I, I know better. I mean, yeah, I, you know, they were my hands, they were my fingers, they were my lessons and studies and all that that allowed me to play the part. But, but it was Ronnie that, in his own unique way, was able to um, create within me. Uh, of course, it didn't hurt that I wanted, you know, like, 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 I wanted nothing more than to, to, to please him uh, in, in the studio and, and give him, you know, what he wanted and, and thereby raise my own stock, you know, being the guy, yeah, Ron, you know, Ronnie, Ronnie likes what I did. Um, but, but he was able to, to, to guide me through this nebulous path in a way that, to this day, I, I really don't understand. Um, <laughs> other than to say 
you know, j- just just massive amounts of patience. You know, we 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 would try things. You know, it's it's five o'clock in the morning after we'd been in the studio for eight hours and just keep. You know, I'll try something else. Try something. There's, there's a part in um, oh, in the track one night one night of the one night in the city. Yeah. Do you know the song? Yeah. Yeah. There, uh, there was it was missing something, right? Ron said, I, I don't know. The, the middle eight just doesn't doesn't pop like like I, I'd want it to. I'm like, okay, so uh, how about some strings? He goes, no. Uh, well, what, what do you what do you want? And it's usually and he'd give me the look by this point because I should know that he doesn't know what he wants. Okay, fair enough. Um, so I said, well, you know, maybe maybe a a, 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 a moving part rather than just you know a, a, a static one. So I started playing the the little triplet part that that goes over the middle eight. Do you know the part to which I'm referring? By yes, way? absolutely. The Yeah. So I start playing that, and and he 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 had his feet up on the console, and he sat down. And he goes, yeah, 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 yeah. That that that's cool. Um, but I don't know about the sound. I'm like, yeah, big surprise. I didn't think you'd like the sound. <laughs> so we, 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 we started going through, and I found some sounds which I thought were great. And he's like, nah. I'm like, really? Oh, okay. And in my mind, I'm like, you know, making a mental note, go back to this one, much like Leon Sklar's switch that isn't connected to anything, because maybe the second time he hears it, he'll say, that's it. You know, and, and, and far, far be it, I wouldn't say, yeah, you know, you heard that one before. I'm not that dumb. So anyway, um, I, at the... But, at, by the end, I was just going numerically through all the sounds that I had programmed into my synthesizer, and um, I came across one, and, I, and it was it was um, uh, it's it, it, I think the the the, the 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 little window on the on the keyboard said uh, uh, MBA, and I, I didn't remember what what that was a code for, so I just played it, and it it was short for marimba, and I, I just I played it. Don't, don't, oh no no screw that, and I went oh and Ron's like whoa, whoa, whoa wait what screw what. I'm like, yeah, no, no, this, this is a, this is a freaking marimba sound. He goes, try it. I'm like, really? Try it. Okay. So I played the marimba sound, and that's the sound that's on the record. That's amazing. You know, when you go back to the Holy Diver record, I mean, Rainbow and the Bar, Rainbow and the Dog, one of the most memorable keyboard parts I think in any song ever. I mean, but Ronnie and I think Jimmy kind of handled the keyboards there. When you came into the band for the second record for the last in line. I mean, the keyboards really became more of a dominant factor in the music and, and the following records after that. Was that mostly because of your influence on what you wanted to put into these songs? Yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to answer in the affirmative. <laughs> but but, but, but um, I'm guessing, sadly, you never had a chance to interview Ronnie? No, I only got to speak to him for two seconds in the studio when I had Rudy Salzer on the show one time. Ah, um, Look, like I said, I, I, I had I, I brought you know my A game to the table, but it, it, Ronnie was the chef. You know, Ronnie yeah. was the one. Um, I mean, I, I presented him with options as I just described in the in the uh, the one night in the city part. Um, but for the most part, let's put it this way: nothing ended up on a record that that didn't pass Ronnie's uh, uh, critical um, uh, affirmation, if you will. Um, you know, he, he listened to things uh, with, with with ears that I can't, perhaps can't even imagine to to make sure that it was exactly what he what he wanted it to sound like. There were there were things when we we, we did um, Rainbow in the Dark for a single at some point. We had to go in the studio in England for some reason, um, and we we redid it. And I I got to finally play the you know the, the famous nine note uh, uh, riff that everybody knows. And uh, you'd think playing something that was already recorded. It wouldn't take very long at all. Nope, 
no, Ronnie, Ronnie didn't like the, the sounds. And I, I had the original. I, it, it was an original Yamaha keyboard of his that we had in the studio that, that Jimmy had played on, on the Holy Diver sessions. And I had the exact same thing, playing the exact same notes. He's like, no, no, that, that, that's... I'm like, Ronnie, it's the same. He goes, well, you know, it's a different studio. And it, it doesn't sound right to me. So we spent, I don't know, a, a, a few hours in an afternoon going through like six different keyboards, um, uh, 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 putting different sounds in tandem to create what became the, 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 the that riff on either the... I don't know if it was, a, it was, if it was only for radio release or if it was for a... Um, for a, uh, a, a, a it was it was some special release of Rainbow in the Dark. I don't remember what the d details were, um, but even something that should have been just uh, almost automatic in terms of recreating, Ronnie still took the time and and um, uh, uh, afforded the critical listening of of of, uh, of wanting to evaluate how it fit into the track before before he approved of it. So. Yes, on the one hand, the keyboards became more prominent because I showed up, I guess. <laughs> but um, what the keyboards provided, I mean, I'd, I'd be lying if, if I told you that when we went into the studio, I knew exactly what I was going to do because I had no clue. Yeah. I had no clue what Ronnie had in mind. I, hadn't, I, I knew I'd be able to play whatever it was going to be, but it turns out that after all those years of practice and studying all the rest of it, the playing is the easy shit. <laughs> that, that's not the tough part at all. The tough part is the creative part, and that that in, in and of itself was another lesson. You know, I've always heard, you know, of seasoned musicians say, you know, it's always about the song, man. You got you got to live for the song. You're you're the slave to the song. The song is the master. The song will tell you what it wants, where it should be, and blah 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. I'm going back to practice. And then suddenly, one day after God knows how many sessions in the studio with Ronnie and, and other producers. It dawned on me that that's absolutely right. The song knows what it wants. It's like it's like the, the another metaphor that you know they tell sculptors that the the sculpture is already within the block of of rocks. Mm -hmm. It's up to you to chisel away the parts that don't belong there. So in in a in a very loose metaphorical way, that's that's the same thing with with um, uh, finding what works in a song and finding what doesn't. Um, it's it's a it's a very tricky bit, and most of the credit for that. Um, lies within the, the, the mind of the songwriter, the person who knows what it is they're trying to create. It isn't about what the listener expects to hear. I mean, one hopes that the listener likes what, what, what you wind, end up with, but it, one of the biggest mistakes in songwriting, or for that matter in any artistic pursuit, is trying to create something based on what you think the audience wants to hear. I mean, that, 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 that is to, that is to um, music or art what McDonald's is to cuisine. Yeah, yeah. people are going to eat hamburgers. Let's just, you know, shovel them some hamburgers. You, you don't want your art to be like McDonald's. True. And you know, one thing that's always been said about Ronnie, he said it himself, that he was very demanding, a taskmaster when it came to the music. Was Ronnie the same way with the business end of it, or was that all up to Wendy to handle? Because we all know the story, you know, a couple of years later, you know, him and Vinny have the fallen out, Vinny wanted more money, and blah, blah, blah. Everybody knows the story by now of what happened. And then, Are you talking about Vin Vinny or Vivian? I'm sorry, uh, Vivian Campbell first. Uh, Vinny came years yeah, later. Well, there was, there was, well, <laughs> part of that story would apply to Vinny, too. I just wanted to know. Yeah, years know. later, he had it out, too, I guess, you know, when he had enough. Yeah. I got around the same time as when you left. 
Who was, so you're asking me if, if uh, was it Wendy that was really the was it Wendy that was kind of the driving force and splitting up that lineup with Vivian Campbell then with you guys later on or was it just Ronnie you know at that time because nobody ever wants anything bad about Ronnie and nobody has to but I'm just saying who was the person really behind the business decision on who goes and stays or I'm leaving because I can't deal with you know what's going on anymore because of Wendy or because of Ronnie when it when it came when it came to to Viv Viv, Viv was a very unique situation. Um, first of all, because it was on his shoulders that, that the success of Holy Diver was largely built. I mean, yes, of course it was Ronnie, but next in line to, contribu- to contributions to that record has to be Viv. I mean, yes, Vinny built the, the fucking brick shithouse of a castle with the rhythmic part, and Jimmy was right there being, you know, who Jimmy always has been, but, but the, the, the songs themselves, the, the, the structures, Viv came up with a great, great deal of that. So to, to minimize his importance to the band as, as, people, as, as has become trendy, um, I, I, I don't think that's merited. Um, that being said, somewhere along the line, I think Viv lost, I don't know if it was his interest in the band or, um, or he, he was really fed up with how badly he was being treated as well as Jimmy and, and uh and Vinny, I mean, I I, I was kind of low man on a totem pole anyway. So, I I mean, I I I I went in eyes opened to to what was in store for me, and I did it because um, because I've I've been a fan of Ronnie, <coughs> excuse me, since forever. And um, as an aside, I remember May seventeenth, seventy six, um, my birthday was the day that Rainbow um, uh, Rising came out. And I was a student at UB at the time. I went across the street to Record Runner or whatever the record store was. I bought the album, and I went down Bailey Avenue to, to my old uh, uh, apartment that I was renting. And um, an, another Joey, uh, Joe, uh, uh, another Italian Joey, actually, Joey Belfiore, who was the, pretty much the reason that I got into rock anyway, you know, we sat there and we set up the stereo and we put the record on and we, we were a little bummed because, you know, Ronnie was basically responsible for breaking up, you know, our group, which was Deep Purple. And then we listened to, to Rising and it was like, holy crap, where did this come from? <laughs> um, so, but, but anyway, getting, getting, getting back to Viv, um, uh, he, he seemed to be coming on, on, on the Holy Diver, well, not even Holy Diver, but on the Sacred Heart tour, um, a little disillusioned. I think. I think, based on what I know to be true of the promises that were made initially, the fact that they they weren't fulfilled. Um, I mean, they bothered everybody, of course, myself included. But Viv came from a you know from a different place. I mean, maybe it was just because he wasn't a, you know another another cookie cutter LA musician. Um, but he he he. It bothered him that that you know promises were made that weren't fulfilled. Yeah, and um, uh, as, as 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 he had every right for them that they should have. Uh, now I, I, knowing Ronnie as I do, or do or did do, I I don't think Ronnie would intentionally ever go back on his word that that's not who he was. Um, in 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 our personal relationship, Ronnie was the most trustworthy, generous, forgiving. Um, Sweet friend, I could ever hope to have. Uh, he was, just, you know, just amazing. Just, I, I tell you some stories, but I'll end up getting choked up, which I don't want to. Do. <laughs> no, um, ser- no seriously, absolutely, seriously. However, it will be in the book, so be sure to check that out. I absolutely um, will. 
but but in business, Ronnie Ronnie was now. Let, let, let's do it the easy way. Talk about the taskmaster part. He was a dick. He he knew what he wanted, and he would not be happy if he, if he wasn't getting it, because he he would hold himself to a standard at least as high, if not higher, than he held the rest of us. So if somebody wasn't rising to the challenge, now I'm not talking about somebody you know having difficulty with a part or or whatever. But if, if somebody wasn't present, if somebody, I'm not going to point fingers or, or make suggestions as to who I'm referring, but, but he, he um, what, what's the expression? He, he, uh, he didn't tolerate fools? No, that's not the, he didn't suffer fools. Yeah. Um, and and whenever that, that scenario would present itself, which on occasion it did. I mean, we worked really hard. We worked really long hours. Sometimes, you know, for, for justified or unjustified reasons, People got sloppy. People were lost focus. You know, he, he was as tired as the rest of us, and a, bit, a good bit older, and he was still there. So, what's your excuse? He 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 was not. You know, he he was he was he was treated. I mean, he he treated us. I assume. Actually, he talks about this a little bit in in his uh, biography, The Rainbow and the, and the Dark Book. Yeah. Um, uh, about the way he was treated by by Richie. I think I think it's 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 maybe it's a little bit like uh, uh, abused children. Uh, what is it? Children of abused parents become abused parents, uh, abusive parents. I, I mean, not 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 to put that strong of a no, but I know what you, I know what you're saying. He he learned from who, who, he, he who taught demand, him the lesson. He was demanding. He knew what he wanted, and if there wasn't a, a, a good explanation as to why he wasn't getting it, uh, his patience grew thin very quickly. Um, that said, if there was a good reason, like you're, you know, you're having trouble with the part, or you know, I gotta whatever, then then he's, you know, he's your buddy, he's your friend. He's like, well, you know, take a half hour, rest your hands, soak your hands, do whatever, and then come back and we'll do it then, or come back tomorrow and we'll do it, whatever it might be. Um, but you know, with that, by the way, I have to add, uh, as demanding as he was, when when you met his demands, better still, when you surprised him by meeting his demands, there was no happier camper. He was just so so uh, so willing to, to 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 lash out with accolades and compliments and support and and the 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 the, the case I'm thinking of is is when I when I recorded the um, the keyboard solo and all the fools sailed away, as you might imagine, that was a daunting prospect to do the first ever keyboard solo on a Dio record. What do you want? He goes, I don't know. Dazzle me. <laughs> sure, that can't be too hard, and and I worked I worked for months on 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 how I would put it together, what I would do. The aforementioned Joey Belfiore was my roommate at the time, and I've known this kid since I was like twelve. So he knew my mom, and he knew what I went through practicing piano every day, and how he couldn't come over until after I'd had my two hours of practice and stuff, and how my mom wanted to see his hands to make sure he washed them before he came in the apartment, stuff like that. So, so we 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 we've been lifelong friends, and he was living with me at the time in an apartment in Hollywood, and I'd be working on, on the solo, and he'd wake up, he'd come out of his room, he goes, you know that sucks, right? I'm like, come on, man, I've been working. He goes, I'm telling you, man, that ain't it. And and this went on day after day, week after week, and then on one particular day, I was, uh, I think I had come up with the 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 intro party comes out, he goes, what was that? I'm like, I don't know, I'm thinking of starting with that. He goes, yeah, that, but you, you got to do it faster, you got to do it cleaner. I'm like, dude, I just wrote the freaking line. Give me a second to to figure out what I just played. Yeah. So bit by bit, my, my buddy Joey, who I love to death, I can't tell you how, how important his influence was in, in in me having a career to begin with and then being a successful one uh, as well. Uh, 
when I got the nod of approval from Joey, I was pretty confident that yeah, this, this probably does, this probably isn't too bad. So then then came the the task of coming up with a sound that would be worthy of a Dio record because you know Ronnie again having had the background of having played with Tony and Richie, the the, the sound was just massive, and for you know a little wimpy electronic keyboard to have to cut through. It, it's got to have some balls. It, it can't just be, you know. And and he 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 didn't want an, a Hammond because that was too deep purple. It had to be something something different. So I spent a good deal of time um, uh, working with Yamaha and some of their their programmers and coming up with different uh, sounds that I could um, uh, uh, daisy chain together, which which really gave it almost the, the the vision that I had in my mind was a bunch of musical notes arm in arm in armor walking down a field of battle. That that's, that's wow. what I wanted to create for the sound. And and I, I had what I thought was going to work. The day came. Uh, we, we finished in the studio one night, and Ronnie's like, all right, you guys stay home tomorrow. We're just going to do the keyboard solo. I'm like, what, tomorrow? He goes, yeah, didn't, didn't you hear me? I'm like, well, yeah, but I thought, what, is tomorrow a problem? Uh, no, no. I, I just thought that I'd have you know more, more warning. Okay, so the day comes. I go to the studio. Keyboard's, I, I get there. Angelo's already sitting behind the console. The keyboard's all set up. All right, this is this is the moment of truth, dude. So I, you know, I get there, and, and Angela's, well, what, what, why don't you just play it, and you know, just let me get let me get some levels and stuff. So I'm I'm calling up the different sounds, I'm assembling the patches, and um, and and I, I start. And Ronnie's sitting there, and he's doing whatever he was doing, um, and uh, he goes, well, "You ready, Angela? He's got the, the the heaviest Brooklyn accent ever. So uh, you ready? What uh, are you going to do it? <laughs> no, all right, fine." So so he backs it up and it, it, he takes it from the end of whatever was uh, uh, the da 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 whatever the part was, and then it da 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 and I just boom and I start playing it, and I I play it all the way through and Angela's like moving faders and stuff and I'm just like I hope I don't fuck this up I hope I don't fuck this up, and I finish it and rather than turning around and looking at me, Ronnie looks at Angelo, and he goes, did you get that? And 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 Angelo who had learned his own self years ago, record everything. He could always erase it after the fact. He goes, yeah, sure. <laughs> Ronnie turns to me. He goes, Claude, that's the best fucking solo I've ever heard. Can you double wow. it? I'm like, fuck yeah. So I did it a second time, and then we did it a third time. We, we doubled the tracks on each side and placed them left and right, so in the stereo mix, what you're hearing in your left and right ear are my playing the same part two different times. Wow. Um, and a actually, what you're hearing is me playing the part two times, well, actually, I guess four times, uh, the two times on the left and the two times on the right. So there are slight differences. So here we go with the imperfections. Are they mistakes? Hell no. I did that on purpose. Uh, Ronnie had me do that on purpose. So that there were like slight um, uh, discrepancies in the timing of the notes and stuff, which makes the notes sound fatter. That That's the uh, the science of how getting a fatter sound works. So anyway, so that that was it. And he turned around and he was just like, "Well, we're done. You can go home now." I was that's it. He goes, "You you nailed it, man." I said, "Really? I, you know, I could try something else." You nailed it. It's done. It's on tape. We're finished. I mean, that was. Can you imagine what that was like for the you know the 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 twelve year old inside my head? Yeah, sure. Never, yeah, it was just unbelievable. It was, and and Ronnie never let me forget it. You know, when when I started doing the the live solo. It, uh, the, I think on the first couple of tours, it was um, it was piggybacked on the solo of of the um, of the all the fools sailed away track. So we'd get to the solo of the song, and then from there I would just go off on a on a different uh, as as one reviewer in, in um, Houston called it, 
uh, Claude Schnell's Tantrum of a Keyboard Solo. <laughs> so, yeah, cool. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah. I mean, so, you know. And to answer your question about the business thing, I, I, I think Ronnie was aware of all the business thing, but I, without putting too fine a point on it, I, I think Wendy had her own agenda as to how things were going to work best for her. That, that's all I'll say about that. Yeah, no, I get that. And, and when you, to me, as a fan looking in from the outside, I see that being as you know the destruction of this great lineup because Vivian is gone, and then a little while later, you're gone, Vinny is gone. What was the final breaking point for you that you said, you know what, this isn't for me anymore, I, you know, I, I have to go? Was it the changing of top legs again? Because I remember something with Gary Huey coming in, I think, and and it didn't work out. <laughs> well, that, that, was, that, 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 that kind of set the stage for it. So Wendy had the great idea that since Craig had quit the band, um, incidentally, little known fact, Vinny was, uh, Vinny, uh, Jimmy was on the precipice of getting fired. R- Ronnie, Ronnie had had it one time too many with um, the machinations that Jimmy would, would get himself uh, entangled in. And uh, he had decided that's it. I'm, I can't do it anymore while we were firing Jimmy. And for some reason, I, I had gone to Ronnie's house and we were going to go to the office together and, and he was going to fire him. And while we were there, um, while we were there, the phone rang, and it was Craig. And all, and all I heard was Ronnie's half of the conversation. And it was, uh, oh, yeah, hi, Craig. Oh, re- really? Are you sure about this? No, no, that, that's fine if, that, if that's what you want to do. All right, goodbye. He hangs up the phone, and he goes, Craig just quit. I'm like, what? Yep. I said, well, I guess it's Jimmy's lucky day, isn't it? He goes, damn right. <laughs> but we're still going to go. So, so because Obviously, replacing Craig was going to be hard enough, but replacing a guitar player and a bass player, that, that can be difficult. Um, uh, I don't know if you know the story about um, uh, the Babies, uh, Tony Brock's band. No. Uh, well, it's, it's a similar kind of thing. When, when uh, John Waite left to become John Waite, uh, Jonathan Kane, who was their keyboard player, quit at the same time. And the, the babies were, were beyond repair because they had lost, you know, their keyboard player, their singer, and their bass player. And that, that was basically it. Tony went on to play with uh, Rod Stewart after that, which, by the way, wasn't a bad, a bad option. So. Um, but, yes, back, back to um, uh, the, 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 the breakup thing. So uh, I, I knew that uh, Vinny, who, who was my, my best friend at the time, best friend for year, many, many years, um, he was planning to leave the band once the record was done anyway because he was going to play in a band with Jeff Pilson um, and uh, who else was going to be in that band? Uh, I think it was... Is it... Uh, uh, Householder? What was that guy's name, the guitar player? Joe Hasselvander? Joe, Joe Hasselvander? No, Householder. No, no, Householder is his last name. Oh, no. Eric or... Uh, he played with... with, uh, with um, uh, the, the, the Rob Halford for a while. You know, oh. that a bell? No, I, I, Darren, I, I not important. Um, anyway, the, the, Jeff. Well, you know who Jeff Pilson is, of course. So yes. Jeff Pilson um, had was putting a band together called maybe War and Peace, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, War and Peace. Yeah. There you go. Um, well, that'd be a good name for a rooming list, Mr. War and Peace. <laughs> Uh, I'd have to remember that if I ever go on tour again. So yeah, so so Vinny, Vinny was committed to, to doing that with with um, with uh, Jeff. But uh, when 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 Craig quit and after J- uh, Jimmy got his final warning that this is the last straw, blah blah blah, 
um, Wendy decided it would be a good idea to just kind of have a, a cattle call for guitar players. Unbelievably huge mistake. For starters, it was three months of listening to shoeboxes full of cassettes. Every day we'd go to Ronnie's house and another dozen cassettes would take up you know, hours of our time as we just listened to this meandering musical whatever it was. Um, it, it, there, there was nothing inspiring in the, in the, in the bunch. There'd, there'd be like a hint of something, and then, then it would just go on into like the doodle, doodle, doodle kind of stuff, and it was just, like, forget it. So, um, uh, but, but it, was well, it was well publicized that Dio was looking for a guitar player. And um, I happened to be at, at the car dealer getting, getting my car worked on, and the, the parts guy, uh, he says, Claude, is, is it true that Dio's still looking for a guitar player? I'm like, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, why? He goes, because my guitar teacher rocks. This guy is unbelievable. You, you really got to give him a listen. I'm like, really? I'm telling you, you know, I, I, I wouldn't steer you wrong. This, this guy is amazing. I think he could be the, the, the perfect missing, missing, uh, missing link. So um, uh, he gave me the guy's number. I called him up. It was, it was Gary Hoey. And, uh, you know, we spoke a little bit. He seemed like a very, very nice guy. Uh, he's, he's, Gary's from Boston, so there's that, you know, that Boston matter-of-factness matter of kind of thing. Yeah. Um, he said he would send me some stuff because I, before I'd present him to Ronnie, of course, I, I wanted to listen myself. <clears throat> the next day, it, it was uh, overnighted. Even though we're both in L.A., he just, you know, he, he took the initiative to make sure I'd get it right away. And it was brilliant. It was just like, holy crap, where, where's this guy been hiding? So I played it for Ronnie, and Ronnie was like, Hell yeah, get this this guy in. Oh, super. Okay. I let Gary know. We set it up. Gary came down. Now, we had been auditioning many other players uh, by, by the time Gary came along. And th now we were already past the shoebox stage and we had people coming in. But but that was almost as big of a waste of time as the shoebox period was. So these guys would come in like like in stage gear and, uh, you know, with, 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 a, with guitars that they couldn't tune or... Um, uh, broken strings. I mean, it just, no, nobody, nobody who was delightfully professional. I mean, it was it was quite a. Again, bear in mind this is L.A. Not not to cast dispersions in yeah. my town, but there, there there were a lot of guys who had no business showing up for an audition with Ronnie. That that's just you know, and and probably five years before, Ronnie never would have tolerated. But anyway, um, uh, finally the time comes for Gary to come in. He shows up. He wheels in his own gear. He's wearing jeans and a t-shirt. Um, the, the deal was you had to learn three so you had to learn um, I think it was stand up and shout rain in the dark and something else and um, uh, and, and something else was the player's choice so um, so Gary would really I think he had a, a, one of the early pit bull amps just a 412 cabinet in the head um, I think he was playing his Les Paul if I'm not saying, whatever it was he came in with one guitar one head one amp rolled it in uh, uh, checked the tuning plugged it in he goes alright I'm ready uh, Ronnie's like what song would you like to do? He goes, whatever you want. He goes, well, no, I mean, of the three. And Gary's like, no, whatever you want. What do you mean, whatever I want? Yeah, anything. Really? Well, let, let's, let's, let's start with Stand Up and Shout and see how it goes. And Gary just, boom, breaks into it. And it was, believe me when I tell you, it was fucking amazing. Yeah. It was, it was like all by himself, no studio, no fucking double tracking. It sounded Amazing! It was like a wall of sound. My my aforementioned line of, of little notes in, in armor marching down the field of battle yeah. that was coming out of Gary's amp, wow. all by himself. And we we kind of looked at each other and I was like, "Wow, oh, that's pretty cool." And, and 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 it was such. A, to be fair, part of part of our relation was the counterpoint between Gary's performance and the 
I don't know, three dozen guys who came before him who really had no business being there was just spectacularly obvious. And um, after that, we did Rainbow in the Dark, again, perfect. Then we did Neon Nights, again, perfect. And Ronnie's like, all right, how about Last in Line? Sure. And he started, he, he learned basically our entire catalog. I mean, we didn't do every single song, but anything Ronnie called out, he, he was ready you know. to play wow. and did and played it as if he'd been doing it his whole life. So we, we probably, the, the, the typical audition was like 25 minutes because we thought, you know, we wanted to keep some kind of schedule because there were so many clowns coming and going. Uh, but Gary, Gary was there well over an hour. And we were, we were we were getting a little tired because we were playing so hard. It was it felt that good. You know how you, when you're tired and it's tired in a good way. Yeah, you did yeah. What you wanted to do, you know, that's what it felt like. And we're like looking at each other. In fact, Jimmy and Vinny were going off on tangents by themselves, which was something that very very rarely happened. I mean, they they usually played. I mean, Vinny would always throw things in to, to, to screw us up just for fun. Um, but but Jimmy was sufficiently motivated by how well Gary was playing that he was taking liberties on the bass, something that I'd, I'd never heard before nor after. Um, it, it was, it was fun. It, it, that, you know what, that's the word. I didn't even think of that until just now, but it was fun. We were having fun, which by the way is what it's supposed to be about, right? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, Ronnie was singing his ass off. It was, it was great. So we finish up and then Ronnie's like, Oh, thanks so much for coming down, man. I was, I was just great. Uh, let me walk you out. So, that, you know, they go out together, and the three of us, uh, Vinny and Jimmy and myself, were like, well, thank God this audition thing is over, because clearly this is going to be the guy. And we're like, oh, man, that was a good find, man. You really found somebody great. I'm like, hey, not me. It's the parts guy at the, at the port shop. <laughs> Nothing to do with me. Um, and I, I'm thinking, yeah, my, my stock's going to go up a little bit because I walked this guy in. And five minutes later, Ronnie walks back in, and, um, and he, he puts his arms out. He goes, guys, you're going to hate me for this, but he's not the one. And you could just feel the collective stomachs of the three of us just <laughs> fall to the floor. What do you mean? Right? Vinny, Vinny was probably the most vocal. He goes, I, I thought he was great. He goes, he was great, but he's, he's not right for this band. Trust me, I know what this band needs, and it's not him. Okay. I mean, what, what are you going to say to that, right? Well, yeah. there's, there's nothing you can say. The, the band is called Dio, and it's called Dio for a reason. Um so uh, then, then he, he said, you know, I, I think what we really need is like we had with Viv, we need a, a, a European guitarist. And like a couple of days later, um, through, I think, uh, who's, who's my, my counterpart who played uh, keyboards in, uh, in Europe? Um, 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 Don Airy. Don Airy uh, had produced a band, I think, that Rowan was in. And somehow Ronnie, Ronnie got wind of this guitar player, Rowan, who was supposed to be really, really great got a video got some stuff and granted Rowan's, Rowan's a fine fine musician but again he was like 16 or just to turn 17 um the three of us thought i don't care how this guy how good this guy is he, he's not going to be better than gary was so i think for Vinny, that was the final straw that pushed him into the decision to go play with um with with war and peace i i don't think if gary would have gotten the gig Vinny would have left and if Vinny wouldn't have left, I certainly wouldn't have left. It would have been yeah. a very, very different scenario. Because the circumstance under which it all fell apart was Rowan came in, he auditioned, he, he was okay, got the gig, but then we started working. And, you know, bless his heart, he's a young kid. He doesn't have the, 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 the calloused innards that the rest of us had uh, to put up with, you know, what Ronnie expects and when he expects it. So we'd be working on parts, and Ronnie would change them, you know, six ways to Sunday at, at any given moment. And Rowan had trouble, you know, following it along. It, it was a very, a, a very ambitious 
uh, uh, regiment that, that Ronnie put everybody through. And, and Rowan, you know, he, he'd literally just gotten off the, well, not the boat, but may as well have been. And at one point, Ronnie really got upset with Rowan, and, and he started excoriating him. He was just yelling up and down, and, you know, what, what else do you have to do? I mean, it, 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 it wasn't his finest moment. And um, Jimmy, who, who was less than sober, I'll just put it that way. Yeah. Um, do, do you remember? Do you remember the um, the, the the Chevy Chase Jane Curtin uh, news thing on uh, oh, on, on Saturday Night Live? Yeah. 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 <laughs> or Dan Aykroyd. I'm sorry, Dan Aykroyd. Where where uh, Jane, you ignorant slut, and, and he would start mimic, or Chevy Chevy Chase would start mimicking Dan Aykroyd or one of those like behind his back, like yeah, goofy face kind of thing. <laughs> Jimmy started doing that behind Ronnie, uh, which admittedly was pretty funny, but Ronnie turned on his heel and caught Jimmy at the moment he was doing it, and that was it. He he was like an M80 that had no fuse left. He just he exploded. He was he was furious, understandably because Jimmy's a guy that Ronnie pulled out of the muck more times than one can count, and here he is goofing on him behind his back like like you know like Ronnie's the idiot. Yeah. Sorry that, you know, um, I mean, I, I believe Ronnie would be the first to acknowledge that that wasn't one of his finest moments and he was under a lot of pressure and he never should have lashed out at Rowan as he did. Um, and I'm pretty sure Rowan was probably okay with it because, you know, you, you know, young kids are, they're, they're pretty uh, resilient. Uh, resilient. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. But um, uh, Ronnie turned around, he grabbed his book, he goes, if this is all that this big of a joke to you guys, then fuck it, I'm out of here. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I misspoke. He turns around, he sees Jimmy, and, and he grabs his stuff, and I'm, you know, there, there's that moment of silence, and I'm, it, it was hysterical. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really stifling a laugh, but I'm not doing a very good job of it. I'm like, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want to laugh out loud because I just knew that that would infuriate him only further. Yeah. But, but Ronnie's, Ronnie's too smart to be fooled by my efforts of trying to keep a straight face. And I, and I, I kind of lost it. I'm like, <laughs> it came out. And he, he, he points his finger right in my face. He goes, what do you find so fucking funny? You know, if you guys, this is all, and he grabbed his shit. He goes, rehearsal is done. As far as I'm concerned, we're done. And out he went, slammed the door behind him. And, um, and then he was like, well, I guess rehearsal's over. Um, so off we go. The next morning, I get a call from, from the office that uh, my presence has been requested, which didn't sound good. Yeah. So I, I get there, and I, I meet with Wendy, and she goes, um, right. So I've summoned you here because I, two things. I want you to know that Jimmy's been fired, and you're next unless Ronnie gets an apology from you before you leave this office. Wow. And, and I, I was, I, and to which I said, if anybody deserves an apology, it's me, because I'm not apologizing for his. I, I'm not going to tell you what I said, but what I, what I said, I, I was I was done. I was not. There was nothing for me to apologize about. I mean, I I had a completely natural reaction. To, to a stressful situation. In fact, I think, as, as memory serves, I, I even said, I said, come on, it's not that big a deal. Let's, just, let's go to the pub. Rowan can work on the parts. We'll come back. I'm sure we'll have it by then. You guys want to go to the pub? You go to the pub. And then, you know, off he went. Okay, fine. So I, I wasn't about to apologize. I'm, I'm like, I'm sorry. There's nothing for me to apologize about. Um, and again, I knew Vinny was leaving anyway, which meant Vinny was gone. Jimmy was now gone. I wasn't Rowan's biggest fan. And if, if Ronnie's going to start behaving this way, I got better things to do with my time. 
so um, so I, I, I told I told Winnie, I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to apologize. I have nothing to apologize for. If anything, Ronnie owes us an apology. She goes, yeah, I, I figured you'd, you'd say that, and I told him as much, but uh, Ronnie insisted. So uh, I guess that's it. I'm like, okay, see ya. I went to Vinny's house, and Jimmy was already there, and the three of us had cocktails all afternoon. Wow. Ronnie, Ronnie called me the next day, um, and I thought, oh, here it comes. And he's like, look, Wendy told me what you said, and, and I'm, I'm not going to say that you were wrong. But um, if, if you want to be in this band, I, I still want you to be in the band. And, and much to my own surprise, <laughs> I told him no. I said, you know, I'll, I, I've been paid to do the record. I'll do the record, but I, I've, I've got to go, go on to do other things. Um, he goes, like, what? I said, well, I'm not quite sure yet, but, I, you know, I'm, I, I don't know what to tell you, Ronnie. I, I just, there's, 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 there's other music that I, that I need to be doing. And um, funnily enough, like a few months later, um, I, I went and saw him at a show, and, and he said, you know, the best thing you ever did was... Actually, that's right. I, I, I had already started writing some material, and I was about to start working with Neil Turbin of, of Anthrax fans. Yeah, yeah. Another New Yorker. That's by right. The way, they can't get rid of us. An infinitely, an infinitely better singer than you'd believe from what he did with Anthrax. This guy had pipes for days. Um, he, he really... Eh, maybe he still will do something with, with them, but... Um, I, I, I had my own material. I, I wanted to move into something else. And um, uh, when, I, when I saw Ronnie at a gig that he had done with, um, I don't even remember who was in the band anymore, but it, it was, oh, you know what? By then it might have been, it might have been World War Three by then, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Mandy uh, Lyon. Right, exactly. And, and Ronnie was like, you know, the, 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 the best thing you did was, was, was follow your own path. You're, you're far too good of a keyboard player to just be playing, you know, the piddly parts I come up with for you. I'm like, first of all, they're not piddly parts. And second of all, playing with you is the greatest honor I ever could have dreamt of having. He goes, yeah, 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 I know you, you, you think you're supposed to say it, but I'm telling you, as your friend, I'm looking forward to what you're going to do, which was like, the, the, you know, just the most unbelievable thing to hear from him. I can imagine. So Claude, I... I, I, I Dad. I was just going to say, you, you know, you asked me what what precipitated the, it all falling apart, and that that's basically the, you know, the. I know, I know, it was a long story, but that's basically no. It was a great story. It was, it's all Roman's fault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I was going to say, I only have like a few minutes left in the show. I could talk to you forever. I mean, so we're going to make this part one because I want to close out with a song. But when the when the book is done and it comes out, come back on. We will have the whole three hour show together, just you and I, and we're going to pick up because I have to, I wanted to talk about Mark Edwards and and there's so many other bands that you've oh, played yeah, with Mark. to put a part of. But sure. which I only got a few minutes left. So I can't, but I want to play. One, one, one more of your songs before I, I end it but please come back on again and we'll do the whole three hour show and we'll pick up right here where we left off the next time and we'll talk about the book more importantly Absolutely. which I'm looking forward to without, without question without what? question my friend it was an absolute pleasure pleasure speaking with you the pleasure was my club when do you think we're going to see the book is it uh, you know coming soon or are you just starting to work on it, 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 it has begun um, sadly for the past few months I've had other things occupying my attention so I've not been able to, to, to move forward on it. But I'm hoping that by summer I will start working in earnest. If, if, if all goes blissfully well, hopefully by next spring. That would be fantastic. I can't wait to talk to you again, Claude. This has been such an honor for me. I mean, you were a great guest and, and an amazing interview. And I feel like I didn't even get halfway through, but almost two hours into it. But what, a, what an honor, my friend. Well, again, the pleasure was absolutely mine. And, you know, you're, you're so knowledgeable, and you're, you're, you're so... I mean, I feel like I've known you my whole life already anyway, so... Um, 
That's and of Brooklyn, course, the guys. Fact that you talk like this doesn't hurt. Of course, when you're from Brooklyn, you know, course, that's the way we are. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, you, you've got my contact information. So keep in touch, um, and I, I will do likewise. Um, uh, and congratulations on your new grandson, by the way. Thank you very much, Claude. I appreciate that. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I know we're going to do this again real soon and continue this story. I look forward to it. Take care, right, friend. Have a great night. You take care of yourself. You too. Thanks bye bye. Right, bye bye. I mean, I wish I would have had Claude call in at six o'clock so we could have kept this thing going. But we got to wrap it up here tonight. We only allowed three hours. So how about we do all the full sail away? We'll end it with that. If I have time, maybe I can get on a a rough cut track. We'll see how that works out. Uh, but hey, I want to thank Claude. I want to thank Mark for being on tonight's show. And next week, who do we have next? Oh, next week we got a great show next week. Michael Kiskis from Halloween, from Halloween. The band is coming to the USA next week. They're going to start their tour. We'll have Michael on the show and Greg Cicero from Forbidden. So don't forget to tune in next Sunday night. How about we close it out with the song he talked about in his great solo, All the Full Sail Away. Take care, everybody. Have a great week, and I'll see you next Sunday night.
Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.